Oh, and you're in for a treat because uh, since you're Josh's guest, he gets oh, no. to start <laughs> oh, the no. show. And oh. <laughs> he just... He just freezes up. We've been doing this show now for like two and a half years or something, and he just he still freezes up. It's strange. You got this. And now he's gonna say that I'm pimping him, as they would say in the in the uh improv world. Mm-hmm. Oh setting okay. setting him up for failure a sure, little bit. Sure. Sure. <laughs> um but uh, I think I'm ready to go if you are. Sure. Okay, Sean, how do I do this? <laughs> it's our, I don't know. All right, here we go. Okay. I'll, I'll help you. Okay. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Hello, and welcome to Nashville CA, your occasionally bi-weekly uh, two movie podcast by two guys who live in different states. I'm Josh from Nashville, and with me, as always, is Sean from CA. Hey, Sean, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Uh, pretty. I just had a um a diet soda. Feeling I'm very bubbly. That's you know you know I'm always so excited to hear. My co-host talk about how he's drinking a carbonated beverage that will not only dry his mouth out, but mm-hmm. will also have little burp noises. This will be a wonderful edit. Thank you so much. Well, and my water bottle is—it's uh, not jingling back at me, so we we are in problematic land. <laughs> you already. can't steal jingling from me. That's—I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm the one that shook it. my coffee cup and said it's not jingling back at me, and you can't steal that. That's mine. <laughs> Who's our guest? Uh, our guest this week, this month, this however long until the next one, is my dear friend, the lovely Kelly, uh, who has been uh, my podcast co-host once in future uh, on Don't Go Into the Woods, and also uh, my video game guide extraordinaire. Whenever I get into a new game, she is my guru. So, hey, Kelly, how you doing? I love that that's my legacy, is, <laughs> <laughs> is that I'm your, your own game FAQ. Yes. Like, your just personal game FAQ. That's, oh, uh, there, there's good. goblins here. Kelly, help me. What do I do <laughs> with the goblins? I have just, like, rote memorization of Baldur's Gate 3 Act 1 now, so you're good. Um, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be on the show. Uh, it's been a minute since I've had a chance to talk about movies with Josh in, like, a professional or at least like analytical yeah let's not context. let's not use the word here <laughs> professional like, we, i mean we talk about movies we we text about movies all the time but like it's different to like get like sit down with somebody and decide that you're going to talk about something specific so i'm excited to do that again and i'm excited to uh do that in like a new dynamic um yeah I was playing Baldur's Gate with my buddy not 20 minutes ago <laughs> leading up to the show nice um, do you have uh, a game of the year or a few that you really liked that you played this year? Uh, Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> Same. It is. I'm, I'm, as far as games that were released in 23, that is by far the one that has hooked me the most. And I love co-op games. Co-op is by far my favorite. And my buddy Azam, who was our previous guest for the Alien episode, uh, 
he and I play together, and it's super fun. Yeah, any game that can pull me away from Final Fantasy fourteen for any amount of time has to be a really good game. And Baldur's Gate 3 stole like two and a half months of my life. It was just all I played. I'm pretty sure we're never... We've played for, I don't know, 18 hours or so now, and... <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to actually leave just the the starting uh -huh. zone. Uh -huh. I, I, I'm pretty sure we're just going to be there forever. <laughs> uh, Josh, how about you? Uh, it would be between Baldur's Gate and uh, Diablo 4. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I, that came out too, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I put a lot of time in Diablo 4 because the, the, the satisfaction loop is so short in that game. Like... It's all the quests are pretty fast, or you can do a bunch of quick side quests and just the it's constant loot drops. And it's always like, ooh, 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 shiny. <laughs> so, yeah, that's and it's a good mindless one. I don't have to think too much. I can listen to a podcast while I play it. This year, I I finally beat Oberden. That was awesome. Mm -hmm. Just took me a while to get hooked into it. Um. I've been playing this game Ocho, which is basically Hotline Miami 3, but it's so good. It's like all the mechanics are just better than Hotline Miami in every way, and the music is rad, and I love that. And that's one where I just like, just one more run, just <laughs> one more run, and it's that 20-minute loop. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, and I've been playing Project Wingman in VR, and it's quickly moving up the ranks of my favorite VR games ever because it's ace combat with a completely modeled cockpit and so when you, you when I can be in a jet fight and look up through the canopy of the cockpit vertically as we're looping in the sky to track my other jets around me oh my it it completely changes the game and it just like I played ace combat when I was about 11 years old for the first time and so it 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 kind of restored some of that magic that I felt back then when I was a kid I like uh, the idea of restoring the childhood magic. It it is the season to restore childhood magic, Sean. It is tis. Excuse me. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> also, we should uh, try to do another year year end report in our next episode. Oh, that's a good like idea. We did last year. Yeah. So, um, so today we are talking about American Psycho, though. And Kelly, this is the one that you brought to us, and Josh and I paired it with The Machinist. And so we're going full bail today, but there's actually so many intertwining things and ribbons connecting these two movies, it was tripping me out a bit how many different layers there are of connection. So why did you choose um, American Psycho? Uh, <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> so the short answer is, uh, I mentioned before, I play a game called Final Fantasy XIV. My favorite video game character in that game is voiced by Jonathan Bailey, who a lot of people would know as Anthony and Bridgerton. Uh, he's also on the new show Fellow Travelers. He, <laughs> he was in the American Psycho musical that ran in 2013 in West End. He did it with Matt Smith, who, like, he played Patrick, uh, Matt Smith played Patrick ba Bateman. Uh, started rehearsals two days after his last episode on Doctor Who. So then I discovered that this musical existed, and my husband sent me a uh, link to a, a documentary about it. 
Um, and then that got me like really obsessed with the musical, which I finally went and read the book. And then two weekends ago, <laughs> Duncan Sheik, the composer for the musical, um, you may know him as the barely breathing man, uh, posted on Instagram <laughs> that there was a run in Chicago. Uh, so I looked it up and uh, tickets were only like 50 bucks. And so my husband and I did a last minute trip to Chicago. I live in Minneapolis. We drove six and a half hours down to go see this musical. And it was honestly one of the best, best stage productions I've ever seen of anything. Like the way that they utilized the space was really great. Um, the way that they leaned into like there is an amount of hokiness to the idea of an American Psycho musical. Um so they really leaned in, into it. It was really good pr- production. And that kind of like put me back around on the loop to going back to the movie because I had read the book and I had seen the musical and now I needed to go see the movie again. Uh, so the short answer is I have a hyper fixation on American Psycho and that's where we're that's where we're at today. I love it. Did they <laughs> so when he's like killing Paul with the axe talking about Huey Lewis. Was that a whole Huey Lewis number? Yeah, that was that was there. Um, it's the way that they used Paul Owen was actually really interesting in the musical. Um, they didn't do it in any of the other productions, uh, but it the stage was a runway, so it had like small sort of landing pads at either side of the 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 runway. But it was a, a runway, so the way that they did everything was on this this sort of catwalky thing it was it was wild um but he came out like they had the same uh raincoat on it was it was so good it was so good (laughs) um and it's interesting um coming back to the movie has been interesting after reading the book and seeing the musical um just in the, the different ways that the movie and the musical used the source material um and i think seeing the musical uh gave me kind of a new a new way to look at the movie because watching it again with all of that in my head, I had a lot of thoughts about like what, what Bale's performance was like and how he chose to do things because I've, you know, seen somebody else do a a production as Patrick Bateman. Oh, I'm excited to hear about the comparisons. (laughs) It's always interesting, especially because you've read the book as well. So I'm curious to hear kind of what, what is the Christian Bale of this versus what is the material? Yeah. Josh, when did you first see American Psycho? Um, it would have been on DVD, but shortly after it came out. So, uh, well, it probably would have been 2001, 2002, uh, because I knew it by reputation only. Um, and at that point in time, uh, I distinctly remember reading the book uh, I remember reading passages in, I had the very tiled bathroom, uh, like with subway tiles and I was in the tub, uh, reading. And I remember thinking like, this is a very cozy environment to be reading this very starkly cold book. <laughs> like there's <laughs> nothing cozy about it. It's just Uh-oh. disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I watched it somewhere around that same time period. Uh, and I was I remember being fascinated um, because it was directed by Mary Heron. Uh, and the only other thing I had seen from her at the time was uh, I shot Andy Warhol, uh, which was like in the 90s. Um, and 
that was like a true crime kind of a thing. Uh, and But I remember liking it, and I remember thinking uh, that she was going to have an interesting take on the material. Uh, and sure, she did. Sure enough, she did. <laughs> what about you, Sean? I've not seen... I've not seen any of her other movies. Um, I saw this in the DVD era, probably, oh, end of high school, I maybe early college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I might have seen this because of actually having watched The Machinist, where I got Christian Bale for a while was my guy. And uh, it's kind of a strange guy to claim as my guy, though, because... I don't really know what's going on with Christian Bale overall. He's one of those humans that just seems to be operating on on his own level. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I, I my main thesis for this movie, watching it again, American Psycho, was I when I was eighteen, I did not, I didn't understand the humor of this. I just I thought it was like a serious movie about a psycho killer and then it was around the point when he shoots the cars the the cop cars with a pistol a la tom hanks and saving private ryan and they blow up that i was like maybe there's something weird going on here (laughs) (laughs) so it took me a while when i was 19 gosh Uh, that's like 20 minutes to the end of the film you really got a a ways through it (laughs) it was listen I was new to weird movies. I was just getting into them. <laughs> okay, so but today, as I watched this, my main feeling is uh, with AI being so much in the news these days, Christian Bale feels like a blank human that was printed out of a factory, and then they gave him Google AI for his personality. And that's how he communicates. That's how he he's trying to emulate what it is to be human, and he can't. And so it's, he doesn't. The way he talks about music is like reading a Wikipedia critics response section paragraph. Yeah, that's he doesn't super prevalent in the book anything. too. Yeah, it's just the book is a laundry list of like he does a thing for Huey Lewis, and then he also does a thing for Whitney Houston. Um, I don't remember if, what other music artists there were, but he would also like, he would just sit there and it felt very much like I was just reading ad copy. Like Ellis had just pulled ad copy and put it in the book, but it just, it, it gets, it got to a point where it didn't mean anything, mm-hmm. which is the point. Um, which is why his delivery, like of the Huey Lewis stuff, especially is really good. Um, I think he does the he does the Whitney Houston one in the movie as well. I think yeah, and uh, that's Phil the one during yeah, the... They, they make fun of him for listening to Whitney. Yeah, Houston. the girls do. Yeah. yeah, um, he has a lot of those in the book. Um, and I think that they picked for the film they picked the fun ones or the right ones to do because there are so many options and all of them bad. <laughs> that was another takeaway from this movie is. It's completely devoid of meaning, and it's uh, not. It's, it, there's meaning to take away, but the characters and the presentation—it's it, all almost completely pointless. Yeah, and and, and so empty and vapid. Mm-hmm. And then I liked that at the end, 
the movie literally states that like <laughs> that, congratulations you just wasted your time yeah uh <laughs> nobody means anything in this movie uh it, they they do it in the movie and they do it in the book too no everybody is constantly mistaking somebody else for somebody else so like Paul Owen thinking that he's Marcus Hammerford or something like that. Like nobody ever calls anybody by the right name. Um, they don't know anything about where they work or what accounts they have. All of their business cards say vice president on it for four men who are working at the same company. <laughs> um, which I, just, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Um, side note for that at the production that I saw, which the, the production was Co-Candy Productions. That's the name of the 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 theater group that did it um they that walkway that i mentioned was all business cards like they literally just layered business cards along this walkway and then sealed it in and then they also covered this was a basement show it was in a basement um and there were two columns that they just also just pasted a bunch of business cards onto so the business card imagery from like in the whole sort of meme of the scene um, in the show is really good. Uh, the musical number of her cards is really good. Uh, I really enjoyed that one a lot um, in both the Co-Candy and the Broadway productions. Uh, but yeah, it's there's no nobody has any identity. Like it's it's not just Patrick who like clearly Patrick is a person who is functioning on the idea like he talks about how he has all of the like the traits of a human he's got flesh and bones blah 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 but he's not there he doesn't exist and that's just true of everybody and uh one thing to note is you said that the names are different in at least from the book to the movie yeah on this on the stage play or on the musical, which version do they go with or do they split the I, difference and it's a different thing entirely? No, I'm pretty sure that with the, the stage musical, they use the book names because okay. it was Paul Owen, Paul, Paul Owen and Tim Price were like the two, uh, like obvious ones to me. That was the whole thing about Justin Thoreau, uh, playing Tim Bryce, mm -hmm. uh, is for some reason they gave him blue contacts, which just feels weird to me because there's never any physical description of these men in the book. Like there's never any, Oh, he had blue eyes and blonde hair type. Like that just doesn't exist because of course it wouldn't. Why would it? It's Patrick Bateman. Mm -hmm. So the, the choice to give this brown eyed person like blue contacts for this role was really perplexing to me. Uh, but yeah, they they the musical stuck with the book names, and then obviously there were the the names changed for the the movie itself. As if Justin Thoreau isn't striking enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what you need to gussy that man up with lenses? Come on. I was I didn't catch it at first, and when I did catch it, and this happens any time that they put like colored contacts on somebody with with dark eyes, dark brown eyes, is I'm just like, why, <laughs> why this? Why did we make this choice? Seems unnecessary. Um, the also I noticed that the poster for this movie, uh, is completely wrong as far as the knife reflecting mm -hmm. away oh, wait, from on. his face. It's not. It's reflecting outward, and so it's it's already kind of showing out warped perspective warped reality that this thing is oh yeah okay i see that's i hadn't looked at the the poster but yeah that's goofy 
Mm. And uh, the intro to this movie with the blood dripping down with along with the music, um, Masters of Horror totally ripped that off. Masters of Horror did the exact same thing with little blood droplets on white linen cloth at the very end mm. with the last four piano notes. Uh, but also Dexter, because this is a fake out because it's like a it's like a strawberry or raspberry coolie uh, that they're preparing here and dexter the opening credits of dexter you think it's blood drops and you think he's like cutting somebody up but he's making breakfast mm-hmm. so i've tried to I've, erase having watched dexter yeah oh I, I like dexter for a time and i think like anybody else there was a point where i was just like mm, it, you know what this this could be done here and i'd be fine with that and so <laughs> it is done now we're just making it done i'm i'm deciding it's done um, can I talk about videotapes? Do you have to return some? <laughs> I have to rent some. No, wait, I have to return some videotapes. That is such a beautiful line. I have to return some videotapes. It's baffling and I love it. <laughs> um, cause it's like, it's the most like normal thing he can think of to like use as an excuse for something is just like he can't he can't come up with something like oh i left something on the stove or i forgot to feed my cat like he doesn't have those those things those connections to do Mm -hmm. the only thing he can say like the only task he can say that he can give himself is i have to go return videotapes and he can do that at any point in the day so it doesn't matter if like a club's open or the store's open like it's just i gotta return videotapes and it, it that's his go-to for getting out of situations he doesn't want to be in. The first time he does it is uh, after Lewis shows off his godly business card, <laughs> which puts everyone else's to shame, apparently. And he goes to strangle Lewis, and then Lewis turns around oh. and hits on him. And Patrick is so afraid of someone both, I think, wanting him and then being perceived as gay that he he shouts i have to return videotapes as like as he's retreating <laughs> and running away from this man um one thing i really loved about lewis's card is that his everybody else had first name last name and his is last name first name so it says carruthers lewis on it mm-hmm. and i don't know if that was on purpose or if it was an accident because lewis is kind of like the silly slash dumb one people don't take him as seriously so i don't know if it was on purpose or if it wasn't like I, that part has gotten into my brain. It's just like, why was this choice made? I want to know. It's speaking of choices with Lewis, that hair. Yeah, that is a thing <laughs> that has carried through on on the musicals too. Oh, Not beautiful! Exactly that, but something very, very similar on both of the actors. Because I've watched a little bit of the Broadway uh one on YouTube, um, but that sort of red very not sleek hairstyle because all of the other guys have this this beautiful like sleeked sleek gelled back hair um and lewis doesn't and in any of the forms i have seen lewis he has never had good hair but he's it's he looks like a dandy like everybody yeah. else looks like these sleek um uh very 80s approximation like nagel paintings practically they're abstractions of of human men right like they're so sleek they're so stylized and then lewis is like looks like a little kid who's playing dress up 
Well, he's the gay one, right? Yeah. And obviously, there's a lot of commentary about being perceived as homosexual, gay, however you want to say it. Obviously, like, that's difficult to talk around because we know, like, they're, they're, there's language that's from the time. And it's also, mm-hmm. like, it's written by an author that did eventually come out as gay. Um, so there's there's some weird sort of stuff around there where like his his appearance and his behavior and his performance all have to be linked back to that that piece of like it makes it very easy to dismiss or even be disgusted by him because he is put in that little that little spot. But also I feel like he is uh perhaps him and uh Detective Kimball are like the only people in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like they're yep. the only ones with any humanity. Everybody I feel else that very much about Lewis, definitely. Yeah. Is that he is he's the only one who seems to have like emotions or to care about things. Mm-hmm. Uh he seems very genuine, initially very genuine in his affection for Patrick. Uh, and then obviously it goes south. Uh, but he Lewis has always felt that way to me. It's just he's he's a person, not just a. I don't know what the best way to describe these guys as is like, I don't know, a whiteboard where you write down like somebody's name and age and the clothes that they're wearing. They're all just whiteboards and you just erase it. And then when Paul Owen calls Patrick Bateman, Marcus Hammerford or whatever, you just rewrite the name. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All of these people are completely erasable and interchangeable. And Patrick seems to be the only person who knows it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a good job of hiring guys who all have a similar vibe and look, too. Mm-hmm. Like Jared Leto and Christian Bale, both with that same long hair that's combed straight back over the top with the volume. Um, and the, all these guys just look alike. They sit around the same ways, talking. Uh, I was this one guy was sitting there. Um, it's one of the cigar crew with Justin Thoreau, and he was talking, and, and he has a very distinct accent, and I could not figure out for the life of me who the hell this guy was. I looked him up. It's Josh Lucas. Yeah, of oh. Session mm-hmm. Nine fame. Yeah, mm-hmm. directed by Brad Anderson, who directed The Machinist. Oh, okay. There's around one of your little ribbons. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I didn't look a lot at like I looked stuff up for The Machinist separately, but I didn't really think to do any digging between the two movies outside mm-hmm. of like what I read with uh, how Bale prepared for the machinist physically oh my god because that was the thing that like american psycho is a film in which it is very important how you look uh there's a huge emphasis on being physically fit and being tan and being dressed well um and that is like that look and that appearance um for bale in that film like putting that up against how he looks in Machinist is so incredibly jarring. I mean, just looking at him in the Machinist in general is incredibly jarring. But to like to put those two things up next to get next to each other and see like we've gone from you know fit and tan to skeleton and pallid 
and like it, it's just awful it's it's a really awful contrast i i think it's great because at the towards the end of the machinist uh he looks chubby to me and i'm pretty sure that's just him at average human weight (laughs) i wonder about when they shot that did like did they do that before he went through his really intense weight loss or did he do it like did they do it after i have to assume they did it before Mm, because otherwise you'd be waiting like months for him to gain weight back well do the shot hello uh, you have a friend hopkins says hello (laughs) I, I believe they shot it before if I'm trying to remember because I did watch the DVD special features ages <laughs> ago. Uh, yeah, I he did have almost like a little bit. It, it seemed almost like a little bit of a double chin, um, uh, especially even like comparison, comparison. Wow, I made a new <laughs> word. Um, comparing how he looked in that scene, The Machinist, to how he looked in American Psycho, even. Um, I feel like this movie has probably set its hooks in a small percentage of men who watched it at a certain age who then developed like body issues mm. because they aspire to look like Christian Bale on this thing and it's like he he must be so dehydrated Don't to get ever. to have the the ripped Definition. muscles like he does yeah what yeah, i've learned in researching his weight loss is just don't ever try to look like Christian Bale because the amount of like the amount of times he's lost and gained weight for roles is absolutely asinine. Like mm-hmm. this yeah. man has is ruining his body to play <laughs> these roles. Um, I don't I, like. I looked at him in the machinist. I was like, how how the how do you ever come back from that? From your body looking like that? Let alone like, that. It was uh, like a month and a half between the machinist and the beginning of Batman Begins. Yeah, he had to pack on. Like, I have a little article on here. Um, he is so bulky in Batman Begins. Yeah, yeah. Do, do I? Do you think I would still like Begins? Because that was always my favorite of the trilogy. But really, Nolan, I'm I'm really souring more and more on Nolan. So I just rewatched Begins and Dark Knight. Um, Kira had to watch a movie that was shot in Chicago for one of her classes, so we watched Dark Knight together, which made me like it more than I ever have in the past because that's the one I've had the biggest problems with like from a technical perspective. Um, but I liked dark Knight better than begins begins. Turned me off the whole franchise and maybe not like Nolan stuff. Uh, and then I've slowly come back around and realized I like a lot of Nolan things. Um, he's just, he's just different. He's just, he doesn't warm my heart. Like, uh, <laughs> all my favorite filmmakers do. I think Christopher Nolan could make, a great American psycho because Christopher Nolan is a little bit Patrick Bateman ish. <laughs> He's emulating human emotions, but yes. I don't believe he really understands. He doesn't them. have them. <laughs> I watched interstellar and I was just like, there's something missing from this movie because mm-hmm. it, everything should be there and the performances are there, but God, there's just a disconnect for me emotionally when I watch Nolan's stuff. Yeah. I'm uh, going to be completely frank. I think I saw, like, I watched the first Nolan Batman it once, 
I remember almost nothing of it. And I'm not 100% sure if I've seen any other Nolan films. Uh, no Insomnia? No. Because uh, that'd be a good one. Mm. I like that one a lot. Um, Dunkirk? No. Oppenheimer? No. No. None no. of the other none of the other bats batsmen. Oh, I've seen Inception and the Prestige. Oh, the Prestige. Okay. Yeah, the Prestige, prestige is the, prestige. the closest he gets to have. I still <laughs> think I still think the Prestige is probably good. I really liked that movie a lot. <laughs> I still think Memento is probably good. I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, oh that's a good that's a good guy, Pierce. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I know I've heard of it. I've seen it all over the place, but I've never watched it. You get some good Joey pants in that one. Uh, this cast for American Psycho is really stacked, though, with um, Willem Dafoe had a real run of yeah. playing detectives here between this and Boondock Saints, which I think came around came out around the exact same time. And uh, we don't need to go into Boondock Saints. That was <laughs> certainly a, a movie of its time. Mm-hmm. And um, But I was also excited to see, uh, well, uh, Reese Witherspoon, um, but... Reg E. Kathy, Kathy. Oh yeah, he's the homeless man in the alley in American Psycho, and then he popped up again in The Machinist, working in the factory. Yes, I was like, hey, another connection for these movies. Huh. Uh, so it also struck me. Did either of you watch uh, much of Mr. Robot? No. No. Okay. There is a character who seems like he is based on Patrick Bateman. And then huh. as, as it goes on, he gets more and more developed. But there's a sequence where um, that character doesn't get a promotion that he was expecting. And he goes under a bridge and pays an unhoused person to fight him. Hmm. And he just beats the tar out of this guy. And I'm like, oh, the there's a lot of comparisons here. And I wonder if watching them uh, in close proximity would like enrich one or the other. And then I found out that the new Julia Roberts movie is directed by Sam Esmail, who made Mr. Robot. So, which is next up on my plate. So that's a personal connection just for me, really <laughs> not for you guys so much. Somebody but listening. Thanks for listening. It. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> oh, Boy, uh, any movie that has a walking on sunshine montage immediately gets like a, a bonus half star from me. I yeah. that's one of my go to just feel good songs. That one, higher and higher. Um, from, a few from others. Ghostbusters 2? Uh, higher and higher. Yeah, yeah, doom, 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 doom. Oh, is that, or is that Walking on Sunshine? I can't, they're, they're very similar songs. But yeah, higher and higher. Your love never may Yeah, that yeah. song rocks. Take my little butt in the kitchen when I hear that song. <laughs> so he and Reese Witherspoon go out to dinner. I love um, when he goes out. With, uh, or not Reese Witherspoon, but the other woman, when she passes out in the cab and then wakes oh, up at the dinner table and she's Courtney. like, oh, are we here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Poor Courtney. Oh, poor Yeah, poor Courtney. Courtney. He orders peanut butter soup for her. Yep. Peanut butter soup? 
Also, that's that's another thing as none of these menus make sense. They're such bullshit. Like I am I I feel like there probably is an element of like um Ellis like researching what he was doing and I feel very much like a lot of things really were just opening up like a catalog of some sort. And so I don't know if these were just like things that were on menus in places in New York at the time and that's where he pulled them from from, but a lot of them sound like bullshit. Like I they think, just sound like bullshit. Yeah, and I think I, they are. I think they're they're like turned up to 11, right? Like, I'm not f- like the thing is is I'm not really I'm I'm not ready to fully commit because I do know that rich people do stupid shit. So like <laughs> these could be real things people are eating. But uh that was another thing is every time you learn in the book very quickly where it's safe to skip over things and the two places that you can skip over for sure are what someone is wearing and what they ordered at dinner because neither of those things will ever matter. It's literally just it's there to to feed into that sort of that pretension that you know that materialism that he's trying to make a lot of commentary about um Mm -hmm. i i can see why i can see why people miss the satire in this movie um because i (laughs) i think it's just i think people are willing to be like yeah this rich guy is crazy which fair i am too uh, but looking at Bale and knowing who he is as an actor and seeing the ways he delivers his lines as Bateman, um, like especially if you put in that into contrast um, as him as Trevor in The Machinist is in American Psycho, he is he's not overacting, but he is definitely acting as a person who is trying to pretend they're a person. Mm hmm. Like he's not acting poorly or or overacting necessarily, but he his delivery and everything is so much. And <laughs> Trevor is the complete opposite. He's a very quiet man. But when he does talk and have a conversation with somebody that he likes, he's he's very soft and he's very sweet and he's very natural. Uh and it just in American Psycho, it's very much he sounds like somebody who's just like like they've got a soundboard of things that they should say that humans say. Like I'm going, I need to return some videotapes, and he just presses the soundboard when he needs something to say. It's There's, not human. It's just there. Uh, the filmmaking, I think, backs that up too, because when he becomes more um, unhinged you switch to these super wide lenses where people's faces are right up in the frame and they're kind of distorted. Like everybody has that, uh, we're like their noses and mouths get kind of bigger and it's Mm -hmm. not quite Terry Gilliam, like fisheye lens, but it's extreme. And it's this like, uh, it's the break from the norm because everything else is very, not flat. It's not shot boring, but it is, it's very Standard. clean. Yes. Like the shots are very clean and like well-framed. They're not, I don't think any of those shots are going for something cinematically. They're just yeah. clean. Yeah. And especially toward the end, um, when he's the last time he's hanging out with the bros, right. Uh, and he tries to go up and talk to the lawyer and the, 
the lawyer like also doesn't know who he is, mm-hmm. which is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even a part where the focus is soft. It was like they were. Uh, I don't think that that part was on purpose, but it was like they were going for broke with this stylistic part uh, through here, so they didn't have as much yeah. to pull from, probably. Um, but yeah, the. Um. Everything else being kind of flat, especially the the montage of him like getting ready and uh, getting like his workouts and everything. They're they almost look like they could be um, advertisements. You know what I mean? Yep. Like very co- clean and commercial yep. looking. Yep. Which is exactly how the book feels too. Is it's mm-hmm. just a bunch of ads. You're just reading a bunch of ads for everything, which is the point. But it is also very tiring. Yes. Um, it was it was it was you need a lot of stamina to get through that book. I literally finished it like an hour and a half before we left for the musical, I think. Um because it was a lot. I got to be fair, I did read it in in a week. Mm-hmm. I got it on a Sunday and I finished it on a Saturday. So go me for getting through that book <laughs> <laughs> in a week. Um, but you you talked about uh, at the end the the shift in the filming and stuff like that. But also like with his uh, his lawyer looking at him as he's trying really really hard to confess his crimes, and his lawyer is looking at him, but there's no there's not no expression on his face. He's mm-hmm. completely blank. He is just there while he is being talked at, and he either acknowledges the content only as a joke or um acknowledges as it to say okay you're not funny anymore and i'm leaving but his face is just totally blank the entire time which is like that's how we expect patrick bateman to look um which is one of those things where in every in every form of this this material that i've that i've kind of worked in the book the movie and the the musical is the idea of what is real and what isn't um, and I think Bale does a really good job of of playing somebody who is getting kind of cartoony, uh, but not, but like in a way that makes sense. Like I think it's really easy to look at that role and see somebody who uh, is losing their shit, and then you see them losing their shit. So you're just like, ah, yes, it makes sense that they're big and emotional and making like bit like the way he walks when he needs to return videotapes to get away from Lewis, like the yes. physicality of it is not, it's not, it's not. <laughs> Bale made like a very good and deliberate choice there um, because it's not how people do things. Yeah. Even when they're flat, like that's just not how people move. There's three or four moments. Uh, one of them is when he's trying to get the, the dry cleaner to clean his sheets. Oh, and he starts freaking out and he does this almost like robot dance. He's like, I don't understand what's going on here. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Exactly that. Like the same, he does that same sort of movement when he's doing the Huey Lewis number with Paul, Paul and Paul Allen. That's my favorite Um, body moment for him. Yes. Yes. It's really good. And it's really iconic. Um, And that is something that they did in the Cocandy production as well, because why wouldn't you? It's perfect. Um, but it just he, has that body wiggle, that little yeah, S wiggle, little, like yeah. <laughs> an inflatable dancing man outside of a car dealership. It's it's 
it's really spectacular, especially listening to Huey Lewis while he's doing it. Yeah. Yeah, his physicality in those moments is really great. I do take some umbrage with uh, when... So we get that beautiful police chase scene mm-hmm. thing uh, where he... The, so first off, the ATM talking to him is still the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. In the in the Cocandy production, they had a guy who I could only half see him because my call, like I was next to a column and it was in the way. But I leaned back enough to see that they had like bathed him in green light, and he was just sort of gesticulating with his arms as he was talking as an ATM to say, "Feed me a cat." <laughs> um. But that whole scene and that whole sequence um, culminating in him calling and leaving a message for his lawyer. Um, was it actually his lawyer in the book? I have this feeling that it wasn't. I think it was one of their friends, like one of his friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless, leaving uh, like this confession. And this is my like kind of my one point of umbrage in in the adaptation is... Patrick starts to like sob and cry while he's leaving this message. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it goes in the book. He doesn't do that. He doesn't really have emotion even when he is breaking down. He says in the beginning, the only emotions he can experience are like anger and disgust. Right. So the fact that Bale is like snot coming out of his mouth, str- like just bawling while he's making this confection confession feels really out of tune to me because the whole point of Patrick Bateman is he doesn't like he's not human. He doesn't show human emotions and to have him sort of crack and show something human like people would anticipate someone would. Um, yeah, it, it, it felt a little misaligned with who Patrick Bateman is as a whole in the musical. The the guy who played Patrick ba- Bateman, you would think I would have like looked up any of these people's names. My apologies. Um, but he it wasn't until the very, very final number that he had any sort of emotion like that he like began to cry. And that was the moment where he realized that nobody was listening to him. They were never going to listen to him. He is trapped inside himself. And Mm. this is what he has. And he has no choice, but, but to take it because it's all he's ever going to get. Um, So that, that emotional breakdown with Bateman, like well acted, beautifully acted. Like Bale is on point, uh, but it just as the as the character, it just doesn't make any sense for that to be the case. Um, so at the beginning of that sequence, the the ATM moment, uh, Sean, did that make you think of Maximum Overdrive? Yeah, but the, again, that's another movie where. On paper, Maximum Overdrive sounds really fun. And then I sit down to watch it and I'm like, oh, this is not that fun. <laughs> uh, it sounds so cool. But yeah, there was a movie that I've, I swear to God, this exists and I don't know what it was. And maybe it's just from my childhood imagination, but there is a movie trailer that I saw and it's basically. We've been mistreating machines for too long, and now they're pissed off. And I thought it was Maximum Overdrive. And there's one part where someone, the only thing I remember from the trailer, someone drops something down the garbage disposal. And while they're over there, you see like the, the switch magically flip itself on. 
and that was that was it. And I don't I don't know if this exists or not. Uh, first of all, I don't like that idea. I'm <laughs> I'm scared of the garbage disposal, and I'm always worried that I'm going to stick my hand in it. <laughs> like, Josh, you you know that you're the one who controls whether or not you stick your hand in it, right? You would think that that would be some <laughs> sort of comfort, but it is not. And you know. I, <laughs> That reminds me. I'm now me, picturing a. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that reminds me of a joke my husband told me. He had, it's something he had seen, but it was a joke about how opening up the oven to pull a pizza out and being like, "Oh, I really hate this part," and just grabbing it with your bare hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that is like seared into my mind, so that every time I go to take something out of the oven, my brain says, "Oh, I really hate this part," and I'm like, "Wait, I should make sure that I have an oven mitt on." <laughs> <laughs> It is because of that joke that I remember to put the oven on. I was picturing Josh in a Final Destination-esque gold gold Ruberg. Rube Goldberg. There you go. You got there. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. In a Rube Goldberg-esque death trap, which somehow leads to him plummeting backwards into his own sink hand first down <laughs> while oh, his foot or something or a bouncing spoon hits the switch on. <laughs> spoons Incredible. bounce, right, Josh? Yeah, we got I, we, we got them Tennessee bouncing spoons down here. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing. You know, the thing about delicacy. that is like it's like the Mexican jumping beans that you see in souvenir stores. Yes. Like that was entirely, my brain was just like, oh, Tennessee bouncing spoons. I bet they're at the souvenir store. <laughs> they're but, right next to the Mexican jumping beans. Yeah, we got them at the Upper Mills Mall. It's fine. <laughs> uh, we should talk about the uh, the business card scene. Yeah? I'm yeah. happy to talk all, about that. All the men comparing themselves. And I like how that scene kind of starts where he says... Uh, Whoever Leto's character is that he goes, he and I go to the same barber, but I have a slightly better haircut. <laughs> that, yeah. That line, they have the exact same haircut, but Bateman's is slightly be better. Um, I think the he was sound actually... design of the business cards is great, too. Oh, God. Yeah. The... All the whooshes and <laughs> that's the, the best thing about Lewis's. Is it's the sort of like un, like the just pop of his uh, credit card. Um, the best thing about the credit card scene is how all of their cards are basically identical. They're yes. they're the same yeah. color. They're the same font style. Like they have tiny differences, but essentially all identical. And again, I've really got to say how much I love the fact that they all say vice president. The, it's all mergers and acquisitions. It's yes. all it's mer- and, except for mergers same. and executions, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, but yeah, the the cards are ridiculous, and it's all started because he sees Paul Owen give somebody else his card. Yeah, and they're because all he wants Paul to Allen, see right? Pa- yeah, well, he, he's Paul Owen, Owen in yes, the book. Sorry, Owen in the book. Oh, he's he's Owen in the book. Oh, yes, so that's a good, so, another good one to know. Yeah, he's Paul Owen in the book, and then Tim. Bryce is Tim Price in the book. Okay. So. He looks at Paul's card and he goes, oh my god, it even has a watermark. Yeah. <laughs> and he says it and looks sexually yeah. upon this business card. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's 
so like I love the fact that he was like, hey, look at my card. Sort of as an excuse to try to get at looking at Paul's court mm-hmm. card. Um, and how immediately like angry he is that anybody could have a card even remotely. And it's not even that the card's better than his, it's that somebody else likes the card better than his. Well, so, it's the scene after this that he does his first kill, right? In the alleyway? Like his first visible kill, yeah. Um, why, I, why do you have to stomp the dog? That was a I, cute little oh, dog. Boy, there is, I, here's the thing. I'm not ever going to recommend this book, but I'm definitely going to say if you're going to read it, be prepared for animal death. Be prepared to skip over it because there were at least three instances in the book where Ooh. I was just nauseated because I can, like, all I watch is horror films. Josh can attest to this. Like, all I really watch is horror films. And most things don't squick me out or make me upset. But animal death is like that one thing that will really fuck with me and ruin my mood. So uh, I'm glad that it's only in the it's only in the movie once because he also has this whole thing with a rat that gets into his apartment. It's uh, a lot. But yeah, um, that tracks for the show. Animal animal death seems to be one of the harder obstacles for us to overcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so as we keep going, uh, and he goes to kill Paul Allen, owning your own tanning bed, that just yeah! seems excessive. <laughs> you want to know what's <laughs> really great? too much. So in the Broadway production, when, uh, I think, it, is it when Paul Owen comes out? No, he, I think it's when he comes out. There's there's this point where the in the production, they have a tanning bed, like half of a tanning bed that's standing vertically. So mm. it looks like he's like walking out of the tanning bed. Uh, which was an interesting uh, set piece, but um, does he say it in the in the movie where he was like, I think he says, you know, I have a tanning bed because P- Pat asks, asks him how he got so tan. Paul says he has a tanning bed in his apartment. You should try it. Mm-hmm. That was in the movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was making it up or remembering something from the book. Um, that's that is hysterical to me. Just yeah, you should try. You should try a tanning bed in your apartment. That's a normal. Have thing you to all do ever inside. tried a tanning bed? Oh yeah. yes. Yep. Yeah. I tanned a lot when I was sixteen because my sister worked at a tanning salon. Really? Yeah. Don't recommend it. And did it. you go full nude, a la Patrick Bateman? <laughs> It feels inappropriate to answer that because I was 16 at the time. Mm, good point. Uh, no, I, don't put <laughs> don't put it in that context. Uh, no, I'm I'm saying like I'm not saying I'm not going to answer it or even that that's the case. It's just a thing of like I was 16 when I did this. What did I do? Um, I I think I did both. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly like the idea of not doing it were people who didn't want tan lines, and I was kind of a person who like the tan lines are going to be in the places that I would like the amount that I am going to show myself to other people ever is going to be in what I'm wearing now in like a two piece or whatever. So like I didn't need no tan lines. Like that wasn't really necessary. Also, it's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to all, all of tanning bed stuff is uncomfortable. You get in there, you get sweaty, you have that weird sort of coconut smell going on. Uh, it's suffocating. 
You go in there <laughs> w- with your best friend, and then the the thing falls down across both tanning beds, and then the water drips down the wall, and you both get electrocuted. What movie is that? Sean, Final Destination oh. f- Five. Okay, I think Five. I don't know. Those movies are jumbled. Five is one of the better ones, but <laughs> um, so the Paul Allen scene. I love that he sits down nonchalantly and sits down in what's clearly a kill chair with all the newspaper laid out everywhere. It reminded me of the what we do in the shadows, the movie when one of the vampires brings a woman home. Yeah. And he's like, don't mind me, just laying some newspaper (laughs) all around And then it still ends up just going everywhere. Yes. (laughs) Yep. Yep, that yep, joke yep. <laughs> killed me. It's good. <laughs> that just like jet of blood spread. Incredible. That's such oh, a good movie. That's I need to catch up movies. on that show. I uh, fell off really pace good. on that show. I've seen two and a half seasons or something like that. I need to get back on. You know, I say that, but like I haven't been watching it consistently. I just go watch it when my husband's watching it and it's just always good. Like you don't necessarily have to be there for every episode because it's just they're good on their own as like little capsules. Uh, where, do you, where do you think Patrick Bateman got this axe? This very shiny, possibly pure silver axe head? <laughs> he cle- what, like store, he has- what store in New York City sells yuppie axes? There's some sort of hardware store because he's got that whole cabinet in his kitchen that's got like a chainsaw in it and a bunch of different tape and like a bunch of different hardware pieces. So I'm sure that he, there's just a hardware store that he went to. How... Does that work in New York City? I think he bought this axe head at Tiffany's. <laughs> <laughs> the only it came in a little blue I do. box with like a plush <laughs> pillow in it. Yeah. I do remember looking at it and looking at the edge of it specifically, and I was like, mm, it doesn't look really sharp. It's no. kind of blunt looking. Is that the point? Probably the point. Uh, does anyone else find it very like uh, just cathartic to see Jared Leto getting axed? absolutely 100 percent. yes <laughs> yes thank you yes yes this part is definitely one of the highlights of the movie <laughs> and it, it just held out so well and huey lewis was such a great choice and i think the first time i watched this yeah you talked about missing the satire i didn't get the humor of it and i was definitely laughing more this time around at the utter absurdity mm-hmm. and complete naivete and and ignorance of a vast majority of these characters there's very few characters who seem to even be um like to is to have compassion for gene is one of mm-hmm. the few gene and christy yeah and uh god uh you know as we get into the as you mentioned the chainsaw i mean that's bad, but the most unfortunate thing to happen to Christy in this movie is her bangs. <laughs> <laughs> Those micro she lo- bangs. She looks like Dave Hill from Slade. Oh. Now, uh, you weren't speaking to Suzanne last week at this time because <laughs> you said she had a haircut, probably quite an expensive haircut. She's a lady in media. She's got to look good. She, goes, she probably doesn't go to the barber like you or just shave it at home. Probably spent quite a little bit of money on it. She came home. She thought, well, my, my, my lover. sweetheart, my lover, my sweetheart, my, you know what I mean? The man my, in my, my life is going to, 
is gonna love this. Well, he adores everything about me, he's gonna love my hair. She walked in, hello Carl, alright? You look like Dave Hill from Slade. <laughs> is what Hugh said to the poor woman. And then, talked about it on air, she was furious about that, did so she what did you do? Carl? She uh, did listen, yeah. She wasn't happy. And she heard you slagging her hair off? Yeah. She, well, what so this is probably annoying her now. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't matter. We can do a lot today because she's at work. <laughs> so and of course, no one's going to tell her. Let's have a chat about a fat ass, shall we? So <laughs> <laughs> hold on. Oh dear. Oh dear. You are oh. in so much trouble. That's. <laughs> I don't. You know what? I don't mind him so much. I'm. I'm kind of a fan of microbanks. Um. Something interesting to note about the the Paul Allen. Paul Owen death scene is Huey Lewis and News has nothing to do with that in the book. Like that's just a whole like he's just a whole section of talking about Huey Lewis mm-hmm. and it's not it doesn't even touch Paul Owen's death at all. It has nothing to do with it. So it was a beautiful and inspired choice to have that section that whole thing about uh Huey Lewis and the News be like how how they did that because in the book i don't think there was like any i don't think he even put any music on it was just just extremely drunk um paul was extremely drunk like gross drunk uh but there was no music involved so this scene is beautifully crafted from two two different parts of the source material that should not connect but are like perfect together the uh, that whole sequence, right? You get Paul Allen, and then he goes to uh, the girls, and it's like it feels like it should happen later in the movie, almost because he's ramping up so much at this point. Um, but the the sequence with the women, and once they get around to having sex, and he only looks at himself <laughs> yep. the whole sex scene. Yep. He's just looking in the mirror and flexing his own muscles. Yeah, uh, I love that touch. I thought that was I, that's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I I love when he says, "Christy, get on your knees so Sabrina can see your asshole." So anyway, about Phil Collins. <laughs> yep. And yeah. Phil Collins is an appropriate music choice because then they Phil Collins. Wow, wow. Sean, I don't know. come on! I don't think I can give you that one, but sorry. <laughs> You should take that back and then actually just leave. <laughs> oh, oh my. <sighs> I'll, I'll give myself a t- two-minute silence penalty <laughs> starting now. Um, uh, uh, I wrote down a couple lines that he said that I thought were interested, uh, interesting. And I don't remember. I think it's when he's breaking up with Evelyn. Uh, he is sort of like she's wailing and he's sort of just trying to say like he's going to leave and he's going to go or whatever. And one of the last things he says is I've assessed the situation and I'm going. (laughs) I should incorporate that into my life. Yeah. I've assessed the situation Um, and I'm going. Yeah, I've assessed the situation and I'm going. I'm not involved in this anymore. (laughs) Um. Uh, and then one other thing that I wrote down that was just like a little thing is during the police chase when he's going through. So he goes through one like business building, tower building, mm-hmm. um, 
And he realizes it's the wrong one because surprise, surprise, we have interchangeable buildings that look exactly the same. Uh So he goes through this wrong one and he's going out the spinning door right as a janitor comes out and he loops back through the spinning door to shoot the janitor. (laughs) That was like a delightful moment of Looney Tunes comedy. It was. It was because that it is that whole thing is so batty. It's so crazy. But like he looks like he's just going to leave and then nope, actually just going to shoot right back around and take this guy out too. (laughs) When it's good. When he walks on that hallway, he makes like a big arc and he's doing his his robot walk. Yep. He's like Yep. It's so it's so goofy. I love it. It's really excellent. It it is very much just like a little not slapstick, but like in that same space. Oh, it is. And this whole time, so many times I wrote down that Christian Bale should do more comedy. Because he's fantastic yeah. in this. Like, his physicality, his ability to uh, create, like, a comedic subtext, because his uh, his lines are going one direction and his physicality is going in a different direction, or his face. Mm-hmm. Um, the it's I think it's hilarious, the interrogation scene, the, the light interrogation scene with Willem Dafoe, right? When he comes mm-hmm. in and starts asking him questions, his face is slack the whole time and he's like oh no what happened yeah <laughs> he's like what's the topic of discussion <laughs> what's the topic of discussion and then he loses track because he's in his own brain and then he comes back and he goes okay what's the topic of discussion and the kimball's just like paul allen's disappearance <laughs> oh oh I thought it it was very funny when they're doing drugs in the bathroom and the guy (laughs) in the next stall over goes, can you keep it down? I'm trying to do drugs. Yeah. (laughs) And then Justin throw freaks out and then apologizes like, I'm sorry, it's the roids. Yeah. Yeah. And then he freaks out again. Um, In the book, that scene is like, there's two people that are in the stall who are clearly using it for drugs. And he and I don't know if it was Tim with him or whatever, but. He and the other person with him were just like, hey, you know, we're, we we want to get in there and use the stall. And they're like, we're not done. And like, there's this whole fucking thing in the bathroom because they won't come out of the stall. And it yeah. the the sweet and low thing is very funny with the cocaine that they do get. That <laughs> happens said, several times. He says, I don't think we'll just do more. I don't think Patrick ever scores actual like good cocaine at all in the book it never happens it's always just really shitty cocaine or sugar they'll still get high if they do a lot though (laughs) yeah yeah that's what it is yeah if you do enough if you do enough (laughs) when uh the the next i think it's the next scene when he's in the um his back in his office and he's about to ask uh chloe seven out but he's doing the crossword puzzle. like, And it's all meat and bones. <laughs> it's all meat and bones, except for one. <laughs> it's too long, and it says bonest. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that one. <laughs> the, yeah. the meat and bones crossword really did make me realize, like, oh, we're, all, we're this man's not only psycho, but he's also a bit of an idiot. Yeah, and, uh-huh. a little. 
And when we look at Wall Street in general, we never see anyone doing any work. Everyone's just sitting around talking about mergers and acquisitions, but uh-huh. nothing's ever getting done. Everyone's just sitting on their asses in their offices just, and somehow bankrolling. Yeah, they just go to lunch or go to dinner or go to the club. Uh, they are never doing anything other than those things uh, or sitting in their office uh, telling their secretaries to say no to things because and those things those things are going out to lunch or going out to dinner or sometimes what was it boxing i think the the person who canceled they box together sometimes yeah uh they don't ever do anything that like there's never a work-related moment the the most work-related thing we see is the card scene I think mm-hmm. that's the only time we see any of them in a setting where it's like, oh, they could be doing a work right now. Um, and I, that's the only time. They never do anything. It's great. I like his date with Gene because Gene grounds this movie a bit and we get another human being mm-hmm. and she's kind of the audience version. Like, this is a normal human being who mm-hmm. has emotions and hopes and understands that she often chases uh, the wrong guys or unavailable guys. And she's like, you know, I, I hope Christy survives. But when he's holding that nail gun behind Jean's head, that's one of the few times in this movie where I really feel like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't don't kill her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, she's um, a civilian. She's a real person. Please. Jean <laughs> uh, is great. She's really great. And that is, I think, one of the last scenes in the book as well. Um, And I don't think in the book, I don't think they he even gets so far as like putting the nail gun to her head. He just genuinely doesn't start to try to harm her. Um, What they did with Jean in the musical is really interesting because they turned Jean into like more of an actual love interest. Um, She is like like there's a lot of scenes with her she's very invested in Patrick there's a whole scene with <laughs> um sorry Josh's cat um there's a whole scene uh, where Gene sings a song about what Patrick Bateman was like when he was a child with his mom who oh wild to be clear does not she exists for like 2 minutes in the book she's not there but his mom is very present in the musical which is great um, but she is she is this this human who is looking at Patrick Bateman as somebody who like could I love this person? Could I make this person happy by loving them? Uh, which is why she is the best character in the book or the musical or the movie, uh, because she's a person. Um. And yeah, the way that they do that with the musical is really good. But I think that they do a really good job in in this moment in the movie as well. Um, because I think it would be very easy to play Gene uh, as, I guess, more airheaded or more like naive. Mm-hmm. She's very self-aware. She's naive, but she's self-aware. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it would be really easy to make her just this this girl who is just like totally clueless about everything going on and not being able to read the room. I think Gene and Stevie from The Machinist, Jennifer Jason Lee's characters, are uh, analogs in some ways of both. Yeah, and a self aware, 
flawed women hoping to uh, maybe through Christian Bale's character change him and live a better life but or save Mm -hmm. him fix him Mm -hmm. and through that get a better life yeah uh the casting i feel like of uh evelyn reese witherspoon as evelyn that is so like knowing her now having seen reese witherspoon and so many other things and you're like this is one of those perfect roles for her because she has that very plasticine quality to her where a lot of times you're like she's kind of not human she's she's a little bit off so she's definitely not like here yeah, like, she's yes. doing some. She's doing some legally blonde in this. Yeah, a little bit, but uh, way less charming. I was thinking. Uh, well, I mean, election. no one holds the candle to Elle Mc. Oh no, not L McPherson. L. <laughs> oh fuck, what's Woods. her name in that movie? God Elle Woods. So Elle Woods, there it is. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I don't like when Christy tells Patrick she may need surgery after last time, and whatever yeah. implication that goes with. That's yeah. no good. Um, I really enjoyed the redhead laughing at him for listening to Whitney Houston. Yeah. But also these women, he's just crushing up a pill and dumping it in a wine bottle directly behind them. Everyone is so, when Patrick Bateman stands behind characters in this movie, they have no perception or any awareness of anything that he is doing. He may as well not exist anymore. And they never notice anything. That's just the rule across the board with Patrick Bateman is nobody is actually paying attention to him. Nobody actually cares what he's saying or what he thinks or what he's doing because nobody, none of these people care about that, about anyone. None of them care about anyone but themselves. And even then, do they? <laughs> the, well, um, we have our, our couple little humans in the main story, and then we have when he interacts with people who are not of his class, uh, the I'm thinking of the dry cleaner scene, and when he goes to Paul Allen's apartment, and it's like the landlady or the realtor or whoever it is that he runs into there. And she's just like, you need, you gotta get out of here. Like, your whole vibe is off, <laughs> basically, as soon as she meets him. She's like, no, no I'm not having this. Well, and if you think about that, too, is like his vibe is off because he's here and he's just like, no, this is Paul's apartment. Why is it like painted white and nobody like nothing? There's been nothing on the news about what he did or the bodies he left behind. Like there's nothing about mm-hmm. any of it, which is one of those moments like that. I think that's maybe one of the biggest moments where it's just like, is any of this real? <laughs> is any of what Patrick is sharing with us as, you know, his unreliable narrator self? Did any of it ever actually happen? Probably not. Like when he in the book, when he goes back, his key doesn't work. Um, mm, yeah, yeah. But like, it, it's just there's no way that that apartment existed in that context or in that condition, and nobody acknowledged it. There's no way it wouldn't have been all over the news that there were just multiple corpses found in the apartment of this guy who is dead but somehow was seen in london and someone had lunch with him twice because we're looping right back around to how nobody knows anybody's names or what they look like or anything at any given time uh but that's like a big moment of just like this is some of this isn't real (laughs) 
So, so when he when he and Christy and the redhead are having sex and Christy, I love how she tries to Irish goodbye her way out of that room by just <laughs> sneaking out from under the sheets and then the blood and the chase. What's spray painted on that wall? It says something about yuppies. Um, uh, is it just I, I wasn't remember. sure. I couldn't quite tell. But then another thing to, I think, show that this movie is pure fantasy or majority of fantasy is uh that the physics of the chainsaw drop make zero sense right <laughs> whatsoever for so many reasons that that's not how chainsaws work no the angle of how it hits her goes through her from the side at her waist so she would have had to been lying down on her side none of it's it goofy. makes any sense and so it's like and then when we see his diary later, it's like, oh, he's like an 11-year-old boy <laughs> drawing violent cartoons. Mm -hmm. And we see him when he draws with his crayon, he is like an 11-year-old boy drawing, drawing on, on yeah. the tablecloth at a restaurant like it's an Applebee's yeah. and just drawing that <laughs> chainsaw kill. Really great question. Where did those crayons come from? Because that's not a family restaurant. Patrick Bateman and Evelyn Williams, not Woods. Evan Evelyn Williams would not go to a family restaurant where they had Crayola crayons on hand. Like that just wouldn't be a thing. So like I think he's just twelve years old and <laughs> excuse me. I think he's just twelve years old and has crayons. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So much of this movie is just like this is the thing I felt a lot in the books too, is there are points in the books where it's like you do hear on the news about people who have been killed or gone missing and it seems like it's the implication is that it's patrick even if they aren't people that like we explicitly see patrick kill because we don't see him do a lot of his killing it's it's not explicit a lot of the time um so him thinking that he's doing all of these things this whole time and not really having any concrete like backup to it like we see him on screen do the thing but that doesn't mean he actually did the thing. Right. And I think he did very little things in reality. <laughs> yeah. That uh that early shot when they're at the bar and he's like, I want to play with your blood, and then the bartender turns back around and it's like nothing ever happened. Like yeah. he resets back to nothing. She didn't hear anything, no one else reacts at all. Uh mm. I that's the whole movie. I think that is the extent of it is like his fantasies playing out. But my question is, uh, there's a whole breed of movies that certain like bros have latched onto or did latch onto at different points in time and took the entire wrong message from, right. You got like this or on the same time you got fight club, um, mm. taxi driver, uh, Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, you've got all these things where, like, the movie is is presenting a despicable person who may or may not be unreliable in the things they're reporting, and they're making themselves look cool or heroic or whatever. Uh, and people are like, "Yes, that guy." And you're like, "No, like <laughs> you've you've entirely missed the point of this exercise." No, not that guy, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I just, 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't. The fact that I've become like just so obsessed with this movie, um, <laughs> and really in my head about like what is real and what isn't in it, like really mm-hmm. trying to to piece that together, um, because Bale's performance is the same across the board. So like. He behaves the way that we would expect him to behave. Um, and that makes him seem like he should be reliable. Like that seems like we should be able to take what he's saying at face value because he never like wavers in who he is or mm-hmm. how he reports things. It's just always that way. But then it like you get to a point where it's just like, has this guy just been like telling us lies to try to make himself cool? Like he's telling us about all his murders he did so he can be the cool kid, even though he didn't really do those murders. It's like having a girlfriend at another yeah. school when you're a yes. kid. Uh, that sor- same sort of vibe, only only earnest because it's somebody who is desperately trying to find a way to exist in this world that he doesn't feel any co- connection to. Well, and if you look at the actual, like, uh, the way that any of the drama is presented throughout the movie, uh, the the chainsaw scene turns into a slasher film. And, you know, that gets the craziest. It's one of the only points where it's actually scary. Like, there's, you know, a fear element because she is so upset uh, and he seems so animalistic. But dramatically, the the business card scene carries about as much weight as anything else. Like that is for him. Like that's a life or death thing. The murders. That's the thing he does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, Oh, it happens to other. It's, it's an other person problem, not him. And we see him doing his ab workout, his violent ab workout, watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So this isn't <laughs> oh, even a, a unique fantasy. Yes. He has two this TVs. Just, yeah. One is Texas Chainsaw and one is a porno. I want to make sure oh, that that's okay. very clear. I was he had curious two because playing I at the same time. I heard a woman screaming mm-hmm. and mo- yep. but I was like that's not the sound at the end of Texas no. Chainsaw. that I that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> I did I do enjoy his after dropping the chainsaw that scream he does down the stairwell mm-hmm. that's so over the top and just kind of golem like little screech he does <laughs> yeah um, uh, but overall this movie rewatching it i think looking at it and seeing it as a false narrative um while it was interesting to think about like, what's what's really going on because nothing's really happening and then with this ending where he talks about basically uh i feel so much pain and i just want the world to feel my pain um but there's nothing to learn from all this self-analysis and my confession has meant nothing and i think watching this movie it was such an it's a really interesting successful execution of nothing Almost like a, in a Seinfeldish way of a movie about nothing is what this movie is. Everything feels so empty aside from sparse little moments with characters like Gene. Otherwise, it, it does feel like everyone is a cyborg or a robot and there are no emotions. Nothing is real. It's all just bullshit vanity covering mm-hmm. nothing 
just covering an empty void that is all these characters. Yep. That's, that's great. That's a great thesis statement, Sean. You know, if you if you'd <laughs> said you. at the beginning, we, we would have foregone this entire conversation. He could have just said that, it, we would have agreed and moved on with our the lives. The Seinfeld thing didn't come to me until just now, so I needed the whole conversation to work it and work into that. Got it. <laughs> well, it's a perfect comparison. Uh there's slightly less murders in Seinfeld. I haven't rewatched in a while, so I haven't done a body count, but I think <laughs> there's less murders in Seinfeld. Probably. Yeah. I've I've watched very little Seinfeld, but I feel like I can still say quite confidently that there oh, are oh, there less is murders. there is one. There's at least one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the LA trip. Oh snap. With the serial killer and they think Kramer is yeah. the serial killer in LA. <laughs> nope, I forgot about that one. <laughs> so two, no, I guess. Yeah. I I was thinking of uh Susan. Oh, poor Susan. Yeah. Um, do so, you have anything uh, else for this movie as we get towards the end here? Everything else I have to say about it is going to come hand in hand with things I have to say about The Machinist. Yep. And honestly, like, you can't let me keep talking about this because I am legitimately, like, I'm really, really not lying to you when I say that this is a hyper fixation. It's like the only thing I can think or talk about and has been for several weeks. (laughs) I appreciate this podcast giving me like an outlet for that because otherwise it's just I've just been talking about this shit with my husband and like, it's fine. We went to Chicago to see the show. So clearly, like, he was excited about the show as well. But uh i should stop talking about american psycho now this show really does exist because i couldn't get any of my friends to commit to a a really long movie discussion i'd maybe get a couple minutes with a friend here or there when we had beers together but i wasn't i wasn't getting all the way deep in there and so i think the double feature worked out really well for this show because that way we can both make each other watch a movie that we really want to talk about. And I love mm-hmm. when a guest really wants to talk about a movie and, and it's just been bothering them. And <laughs> those, are, those are always the best episodes is when yes. someone is just like, I've been dying to talk and make someone else watch this so we can finally discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I'll say one last thing and just like the musical is really good for a lot of reasons. Um, just in, it pulls both from the kind of from the movie as well as from the book. Like there's stuff in it that was from the book that wasn't in the movie, that sort of thing. Um, but something that's really interesting about the music for this is that it's all um, all synth. Like uh, Duncan Sheik, who wrote it, he he wanted to do it um, only with sounds that you could have had in the 80s uh, oh, to cool. make the music, which is really cool. Um, and then some of the songs are like arrangements of songs from the eighties, but they are only done in like acapella covers. Like they're not, they're not like the way that they were when they were released. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they do, uh, in the air tonight is like a really long acapella choral piece. How do they uh, do the drum break? I was just going to ask. <laughs> Uh, i wish that i had a good answer to that um i'm gonna say i don't remember if they got that far okay um but then like just 
the numbers themselves are like being able to take a a scene like to take a thing about business cards and turn it into a song that's actually like really fun and funny to listen like a lot of it is just fun it's fun because it's sort of camp um so the the music for it is really good. The only like recording that exists is the West End production that had Matt Smith and also Jonathan Bailey, my cat husband. Um but it's I think it's worth going and listening to it at least once. It's not fully the the way that the musical is now. They made changes for Broadway um in you know swapped out some songs and changed the the opening song but it, it's still very interesting to listen to i think um so i would recommend listening to the soundtrack at least at least once and kind of just in your brain thinking about like you know what you've seen in the movie and in these experiences in the movie and now we've now we've made the music <laughs> kelly i feel like i can guess but out of five stars what would you give american psycho Mm, that's a tough one. No, you know what? I think it is. It, like personally, it's a five star, and part of that is very much rooted in just like my overall affection for the source material and the other things that have been done for it. Um, but like, I remember even the first time I watched this movie years ago, before any of this was even a thing. Um, I still found it really interesting and that was at a point in time where I hadn't really honed like my thoughts or interests in any sort of horror thriller areas. Um, I was just sort of starting to get myself in a space where like I was watching stuff that would be considered more controversial Um, and I still ended up really liking this like enough to where I was like there's been multiple times where I'm like I should watch American Psycho again and then I just never get around to it because that's that's how it do. Uh, but I think it is a really well executed film. It does a great job on um, pulling on its source material and um, finding ways to combine pieces of it together that are really interesting. Um, you know, we talked about how the shots are very clean and nothing's really like nothing's really reaching for things cinematically, but this is a thing where it shouldn't be. Um, artful framed shots aren't really the point for something like this um but do you know making those changes at, at the end with the the lenses like josh had talked about um is a really like nice sort of subtle way of of shaking things up um i think that bateman's performance really everybody is very good but ba- um bale's performance as bateman is really excellent uh i watch this movie and i feel like i am watching a movie that was made in the 80s because like just everything's on par the the fashion the sets the vibes like it feels like a movie that was made in the 80s or at least in 1991 when the book was released but no this was released in 2000 and my brain keeps forgetting that so i i felt the same way because i kept saying like oh my god all these actors are in it how old are all these yeah. people? But it's it's just a newer movie than I remember. I mean, 23 exactly. years is still 23 years, but seeing Thoreau and Witherspoon yeah. and so many of these people that I've known for so long. But yeah, I thought this this movie feels like it's from the mid-90s, yeah. maybe earlier maybe. than that. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels very... It feels very where it's supposed to be, and I think it's really great that they were able to execute that in 2000 when I think uh people were moving away from that 
sort of vibe, uh, especially in like thriller and horror stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah, I really like it for both personal and I guess analytical reasons. I think they're, I think it's a great movie. Uh, it's not for everyone, uh, just because of, you know, certain pieces of content, but I think people who are open to having to deal with that difficult kind of content, uh, should watch it at least once. Josh, what you got? Uh, there's two ratings, and I'm stealing one from uh, a letterboxed person. <laughs> my my personal rating uh, is three and a half because you know I always have to give things extra if if they engage me emotionally, and this holds you way way back. <laughs> the, I was gonna say I don't think this gets a heart. No, it no. does not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is. It's it is cold, and it's. Um, not sarcastic, but I mean, satire, you can only go so far with, you know, I feel like emotionally, but I feel like it is, uh, incredibly well executed for what it is. And like you were saying, uh, in contrast to the machinist, which is very much of its time and its look, this looks like a movie. The, I mean, the color palette, the film choice, all of that stuff looks like it happened uh, in like the latest, the the early nineties, it really is set like locked in that period, which is great. Um, the second, uh, star rating would be five stars for the brutal murder of Jared Leto. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it gets. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. What about you, Sean? Uh, pretty much carbon copy. Exactly. Your sentiment and review a three and a half. And I thought I enjoy the satire and I thought it was legitimately funny at parts. But when everything feels like artifice, there's nothing for me to really hold on to. And but the movie does exactly what it set out to do. And so no fault to it. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a way to make this movie better. I just think that's the nature of this story and my connection to it. So um, it's, it's a really good movie. That's a three and a half. Yeah. Noted. Um, so I've got to go return some videotapes. <laughs> okay. So you're driving back to uh, 2011 to the last time there was a blockbuster open near you and returning those things? Oh, no. There, I'm sorry. Uh, I worked at uh, Hollywood Video in that era. And it was still like... I, I worked at Hollywood Video in that era. You, what? We're, I worked at a Hollywood Video for like a month. Oh. And this, the, I then quit, and the location closed down within a few months after I quit, and that was basically the end of the rental era. I caused the entire <laughs> system to collapse when I left that Hollywood Video. <laughs> Uh, well, it looks like Hollywood Video ceased operations in 2010, so it would have been right before that, yeah. You, yep, I you, was, you did I was it, Sean. about 20, 22 or 23 years old, going to junior college and ho working at Hollywood Video. What a time. What a time of my life. <laughs> I did like talking in movies with customers every once in a while when people would ask me advice or opinions or suggestions. I did not like listening to the same 
seven minute DVD promo trailer over and over and over throughout the course of a shift. It was very exciting every few weeks when a new, well, the one time it happened right. during my employment when they switched to a new DVD and we got a new round of ads for me to get sick of. Yeah, the same thing happened uh, when I was managing the movie theater. Um, it was the, when I worked at the Regal, it was the year that, uh, was it Deep Blue? The one with um, Jessica Alba in it? Oh, I remember that. And Paul Walker, I believe. Uh, and I distinctly remember getting complaints because of Jessica Alba's bikini in the, in the trailer. Because it was playing in the lobby. And I was like, we should not be playing this. It is, I makes me uncomfortable. And this is a matinee time. It's, it's not even like prime time. If they didn't have that shot in the trailer, that movie never would have seen the light of day. Yep. That was the only selling point of that movie. It's like, oh, Jessica Alba is the it girl. Look at her. We got her in a bikini. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, Hollywood. Way to go. Exploitation cinema. Yay. Let's take a break. All right. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. We are now talking about The Machinist from 2004, directed by Brad Anderson. And um, Josh, you chose this one as a pairing, which I'm glad you did, because I I watched this movie a few times back when it first came out, and um, I was excited to revisit it. Why did you pick The Machinist? Um, in my mind, it was very tied to like the, the time and place. Uh, of American Psycho, I think because, I mean, the Bale connection, right? And then as we watched it, all those connections were only deepened by the text, which was pretty great. Uh, also, uh, Sean and I are Fandersons. So. You're yeah. what? We're Fandersons. We're Anderson fans. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, so. I'm a huge fan of Session 9. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah, it's really great. And this happened with Session 9 and The Descent. So Brad Anderson and Neil Marshall for a while were like, my guys. These are my guys, and I'm going to watch all their movies. And then I was doing work to try to be like, yeah, that." oh no, I, I know people didn't like Doomsday, but I thought it was a really fun take on like a Mad Max, blah, blah, blah. I, neither of these guys are really my guys anymore. But, because <laughs> um, with Brad Anderson, I've seen The Call, the one where Halle Berry is a dispatch operator. I've seen Trans Siberian with Woody Harrelson on a train. Mm -hmm. Happy Accidents, which is a time traveling Vincent D'Onofrio falls in love with Marissa Tomei. That's actually probably one of his better movies. Yeah, that Happy sounds accidents. cute. It's, it's a nice love story with. It's like. Um, what if 12 Monkeys was a rom-com, basically? I don't... I'm sorry, I don't have frame of reference for that. I've not seen 12 Monkeys. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good... I wonder if 12 Monkeys holds up for me. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting. Because I think, I think that I really like it. I think I do. I might not anymore. <laughs> but anyways... Uh, I still like some of his movies, but he's definitely a hit-or-miss director. Um, but I be, seeing this movie when I was 18, 
this was prime like i'm getting into indie movies now let me watch this weird shit i want to see some things that are outside the mainstream and then show it to my friends and this was one of those movies right oh it's 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 a like it's like an art movie you know it has christian bale and he's super skinny and uh yeah pretentious 18 year old me i think showed this to a few people okay um he he had a he had a masters of horror as well that you've brought up before i think one or two uh i don't or it, he also did a show on that it the masters of horror extension that was picked up by abc or cbs yeah one of those there's one where there's a cannibal in a jail cell i think that was brad anderson or do we we I, we might be deja vuing and already had this conversation and i'm wrong about the same thing and you're about to correct me i uh i do think you're wrong <laughs> but, but he did have has, episodes has of happened before yes. he's he's had he had episodes of both the masters of horror was the one um where the guy has the the hearing uh that drives oh that's a good one yes that was yeah with the sheriff andy from true blood mm-hmm. is a guy who his hearing keeps getting better and better to the point where it starts to drive him insane because he can hear every little sound everywhere. Yeah, I liked that episode. That's I picked those up a couple years ago. All on, they're on Apple TV, uh, and I only got through like the first three. I got to the Dreams in the Witch House episode. Uh, that that's a rough sit. <laughs> that episode is not good. There's some real schlock. In there, there's some hidden gems, but there's some real schlock, which then kind of makes the title of the show somewhat embarrassing mm-hmm. when a quote-unquote master of horror delivers some turd of, <laughs> of an episode. But just for uh, bringing us John Carpenter's cigarette burns, uh, I'm happy that it exists. Is that good anymore, though? Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if cigarette burns would hold up for me. And I used to think it was one of John Carpenter's better works. Yeah, I mean it's it's got uh, Baby Norman Reedus in it. I know, but that guy's not a good actor. He's intense, though. He he Listen, brings an I've, intensity well, I, to things. As someone who, well, my friend and I, we have about five episodes left in the entire series of the walking dead Mm -hmm. so as someone who is committed to watching that entire show uh that man is doing his best acting when he just goes (laughs) i'm norman reedus and i don't care if you ask him to do anything beyond that it can get a little slipshod He's pretty good in Death Stranding, but I think, you know, there's the benefit of that being a video game versus, like, like that's voice acting technically. Cut. I mean, he does mocap for it, too. Yeah. Uh, but it's a different format, so what, maybe that works What a advantage. waste of money that game was for me. Really? You didn't like it? I think I mainly got it just as a tech demo to look at something on my... 4k tv and be like "Ooh, look how pretty this is and it is very pretty to look at but uh i i didn't commit to it also 
I cannot do uh fuck, I can't think of that guy's name. The Konami guy. I cannot do Hideo? his Kojima? amount of cutscenes. Kojima. Yeah. I cutscenes in video games are hard for me to get through. Baldur's Gate is doing a great job of keeping things pretty brief, and even when it's a cutscene that may be a bit longer, or a conversation that's a bit longer, I really feel like I'm having an impact in what where the story's gonna go or what's gonna happen, versus a Kojima thing where I'm really loving playing Metal Gear Solid, and then I have to watch 40 minutes of this convoluted story that makes no sense and i have no reference for anything and none of it means anything i mean if we talked about american psycho being vapid and void of meaning (laughs) look at a kojima story and then we'll talk okay (laughs) i'm Uh, sorry that's okay i i I like i like uh kojima on like an intellectual level level um i watched my husband Joe play uh, some Death Stranding and it was fun to watch him to not play myself because all of the packing and the walking and the no, um, that's a no for me. Uh, but it was cool to watch and I really did like like the cutscenes and stuff for it. Like I loved those bits, but they are a lot. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm a person who likes long cutscenes. I play games for story first and everything else second. So that being said, I, yeah, I get it when like when you're trapped in a cutscene and, and can't do anything, that's agonizing. Yeah. I play games I, I prefer games oftentimes to have almost no story. <laughs> like that hotline Miami game Ocho, I've been playing OTXO. There's nothing. It's basically like one percent story. 99% blasting through rooms with guns and sure. kicks and punches and that's super valid. <laughs> I just don't have I don't have the patience for it and I know I I've missed out on some games having really big moments but there's been some games where I've skipped every cutscene and then just like well I'll figure out what's going on <laughs> once this boss fight starts and then I <laughs> I have no reference for anything that happens. I just want to play the game. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on the opposite. I'm I'm there for cutscenes. That I play on story mode any chance I get because I just want to get through it as quick as I can. I don't care if I'm playing mechanics or feeling challenged. Like, nah, just give me the story. Shadow of the Colossus is my all-time favorite game because that game just makes you tell your own story yeah. as you play it and as you explore the world. And I just... I, I've played that game now for uh 15 plus years close to 20 years and i'll keep playing it every every year i'll get back into it and start a new run on ps4 now and play it again i i love that game and it's storytelling yeah joe really likes it too i like i spend a lot of time watching my husband playing video games uh because they're games i don't necessarily want to play myself and then I can sort of passively participate. So if my brain does start to do the ADHD disconnect, I can just like hop on my phone for a few minutes and then I can come back and see what, what's going on because Joe is just piloting the whole time. Um, and like Shadow of the Colossus is one of those games where it's just like the gameplay, like the concept of the gameplay is really cool to me, but I don't think I would actually enjoy doing it. I wouldn't actually enjoy playing and doing those fights. Like it's just not, I love to watch them. 
I don't want to be the one who has to mechanically deal with doing it. I hear a lot of people complain about the controls and how that game feels, but I'm they they get mad that uh, you have very little control over your character sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, yeah, but you're climbing on a giant right. monster. Of course, you're going to be a little wobbly and not very sure-footed, but yeah. I don't know. I love it so much. The Machinist. What are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> Video game podcast? Uh, Yeah. We're we're doing this. Um, real quick, I just got to get this out of the way. My brain, every time I heard his name, Trevor Resnick, my brain kept saying Trent Reznor. So d- just- did you... Did you look that up? Because I was like, no. is he supposed to be? He's like, yeah, he totally named him after Trent Reznor. Okay. I had a sneaking suspicion that it, like, it felt weird. It felt weird that it would be unintentional, but I didn't bother looking it up. I just know that that's what every time I hear Resnick, I was just flipping it in my head. That's funny. Trevor Resnick, <laughs> Trevor Resnick is a cool name. It's good. Yeah. It's a good name. That's like a Travis Bickle. Taxi driver. Oh, okay. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about with American Psycho, Fight Club, Taxi Driver, just movies that 17-year-old boys attach themselves to, basically. Yeah, I Clockwork would not have orange. a frame of reference for that. Especially because I'm... Well, actually, Sean, I don't know how old you are in relation to me, but I know I'm eight years younger than Josh, so there's 37. also a little bit of a gap. I was okay. born in 86. Oh, okay. So you're my age then. Cool. Um but I was not a 17-year-old boy at any point, so there is still that. So getting into The Machinist, um, it's it's about a man with profound insomnia. And due to this, Christian Bale lost a ton of weight. In the movie, at its lowest, he says, it says he weighs 119 pounds. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much Bale actually weighed. He lost a hundred pounds to get to that weight. Um, that if I recall correctly, doesn't seem like a good idea. I remember him saying on the commentary oh, no. that he just starved himself, or he'd, he'd he would eat an apple, and an a apple, a coffee, and can of water. tuna, right? Or, yeah, um, yeah, and occasionally a whiskey or something. Yes. Okay. It says his diet was said to consist of an apple, water, and coffee daily, in addition to the odd whiskey. He also smoked a lot. Um, and it was actually 62 pounds he lost to do uh, the role for, for Trevor. Um, he's, he's done so much, so many different roles where he has just drastically lost and gained weight. I don't understand why anybody would put themselves through it. Um, yeah, he's a s- skinny man. I think that's really the hook of this movie in what's what gets people into seats is not if you just say there's a movie about a man with insomnia it's like all right oh sure but if you say there's a movie where christian bale looks like the slender man (laughs) and has insomnia that's like okay well maybe i'll check that out especially as josh pointed out when people were like oh he just got named as the new batman so a lot of people didn't really know christian bale very well when he was announced as batman this is like oh well yeah go back and check out his most recent movie the machine i remember hearing about this movie on the news even though it wasn't a thing that was like within my sort of like my my space my circle but i do remember it being like a news item of just like look how much weight this man lost to play this role 
Um, and my so my experience with Christian Bale um, is limited to uh, the Batman movie I don't remember, mm-hmm. American Psycho, and Newsies. Uh, I was so- ask it was Newsies. <laughs> so for me, I'm like the hot kid from Newsies looks like a crow, like a skeletal bird. There's even like that, there's that scene where he's in Stevie's place and he's in the bathroom and he puts his arms out to the side and sort of like does like a little kind of bird arm wiggle thing. Mm-hmm. Like he looks like a bird. It's very creepy. Uh, He looks like, because his back is kind of arched and you can see every bone of his ribs. Have you ever seen <laughs> the art of how to make a human turtle? No, but I'm now I'm afraid to look it up. Because <laughs> <laughs> how to make a human turtle? How to make a human turtle? <laughs> For some reason, it's just what. Oh everyone... no! <laughs> oh no! Uh, That's, it's upsetting. You're correct. Yeah. You're correct. It's got that vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he himself is body horror in this movie. Yeah. 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 The. The immediate and sort of direct contrast to um, Patrick Bateman, like, obviously, like, the radically different bodies. But another thing that really struck me is his, the fact that he uses, like, bleach or lye to wash his hands. He doesn't Mm -hmm. use soap. He uses bleach or lye, which is so completely opposite of Patrick Bateman with his intense skincare routine. No cologne on the face that will dry out your skin. Uh, and this is just, this is a character that's completely different. It's just radically different. I may have, in lieu of watching this movie, at one point washed my hands with bleach to see. <laughs> see 17. how it felt? 17 year old. Or how did, how, how'd that go? Old, yeah. It's kind of slimy. I'm feeling. I'm pretty sure that like the dissolving of that top layer of skin. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, I probably wouldn't wouldn't recommend. Probably as no. how that would go. I would say, but no. you know, this dumb dumb shit that I've done in my life. You know, that's fair. Um, my favorite bail. My favorite bail would be. God, I I like I like three ten to Yuma a lot. Um. Mm-hmm. Reign of Fire is a movie I want to like so much. Oh, I remember that I used movie. To be, I used to be an equilibrium guy, and my hot take back in the day was that, oh, if you like The Matrix, you should see Equilibrium. It's a better movie. Oh, of my. Course and I think looking back upon that, well, jo- Gunkata. The yeah, Matrix did not have Gunkata, Josh. Okay? <laughs> um, But he's a great actor who... I haven't really attached myself to anything he's done in a while. The last one that I really loved was like 310 to Yuma and The Prestige. Uh he he's in uh, Michael Mann. Which one? Uh Public Enemies. I never saw that cuz everyone said it was bad. <laughs> it's a Michael Mann. Come on. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling similarly about Ferrari. <sighs> yeah. Oh, there was something fair. in the article not, I read about Ferrari. I am excited about Heat 2, though. Heat uh, 2 
As long as if they cast Timothy Chalamet in Heat 2, I'm going to be so mad. I'm going to be so mad because I've said on multiple co- podcasts now, get rid of Timothy Ch- Chalamet. I'm done with him for a few years. And <laughs> Hollywood is not listening. I'm really hoping that when Wonka crashes and burns so hard that I will then be proven right. I cannot wait to see Wonka. Kelly, I, no. I ca- Kelly, it's, no. It's like a car crash, and I can't look away. And the thing is, is I think I might like the car crash. I might end up liking <laughs> the car crash. It's so just, you are you're uh, in that Cronenberg crash movie. The the car crash in this case <laughs> might actually get you off a little. Yeah. No. Uh. I. It looks really, really hokey in a fun way. Uh. Also, they nailed me. Like. The, tr- the trailer, I was just like, oh, yeah, this looks kind of like goofy and cheesy and whatever. And then they put Hugh uh, Grant in as an Oompa Loompa. <laughs> and he's the last part in the trailer that you see is him. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, well, well, now I have to see the movie. Um, but that movie is not The Machinist. That's a radically different movie than The Machinist. Um, I... So I watch things with subtitles uh, because I have auditory processing issues. And one of the things about the subtitles for this that really tickled me was when music would start to play, there was there was one theme specifically that came around a lot. And the subtitles labeled it as light mystery theme or delicate mystery theme or pastoral romantic theme. Ooh. Uh, and I just thought those were really delightful in contrast with what was happening on the, s- <laughs> on the screen. Before watching this movie, I made a note of, I was trying to just kind of think of what, what memories do I have of this movie? And I thought, is there a theremin on the score? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of theremin yeah. in this score. I think this is the most theremin heavy movie in existence. <laughs> this, uh, the theremin is to this movie as the zither was to uh, the third man. Good, good callback. <laughs> Very good. That's all I remembered about this movie. And I was texting Kelly about it. I was like, uh, post-it notes. That was <laughs> yeah. it. That was my whole memory was post-it yeah. notes. Which that's so, fair. That's actually, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. They play <laughs> pretty one I had seen so many times that I could have. Clo- closely gone plot point by point uh, and remembered and figured things out. Might have been a few things that I had forgotten, but I don't know why I watched this one so much when it, when it came out, when I got it on DVD. I don't know. Um, I want to compliment the pick here because it's really interesting to see back to back Bale playing two people who are really like something's not right right in their brain, like mm-hmm. something's not good up there. And with uh, Patrick Bateman, it's you know somebody who is psychopathic, who is uh, incapable of feeling feeling someone who knows that something's wrong with them and can can't really communicate with the world around about it. Um, Whereas Trevor, who, like, he figures out something's going wrong. And then that 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 loop of, like, oh, no, something's going wrong, and now I'm losing my mind trying to figure out what it is. 
Um, and the ways that he is really emotionally responding to what's happening to him. Um, and again, I think I mentioned it before the fact that when he is interacting with people genuinely, he's, he is genuine. He's very sweet and kind and, and likes to laugh and like cares about other people and doesn't want anybody else to get hurt, which is the opposite of Bateman. Um, so they're they're both dealing with these like these big my brain's broke moments, but um he's able to play them both really, really well. Uh that's a really interesting point. And I his characters in both of these, it is kind of like watching in an American Psycho, he's a robot, but he never existed ever as a human being. That man has always been a robot. Mm-hmm. And in and in the Machinist, at one point he was human, and now he's been reduced to essentially a, another robotic life. As he tells Stevie and reference a few times that he's been going through this for a year, mm-hmm. and it's not. Physically, it's not possible to not sleep for a year. We see him. Yeah, he says no off. one ever died of insomnia. That's, <laughs> that's him, not true. Yeah, that's factually incorrect. But we, we see him take little. I, I think he nods off mm-hmm. for ten or twenty minutes here or there, whether whether he realizes at, it or at, not. At that airport cafe, where yeah. he, you know we find out later, he just stares into his coffee cup and is completely mute. Yeah, you know, probably daydreaming or literally dreaming um i thought it was funny that and every time we see him get close to sleep something wakes him up and the kind of most on the nose one was when he's reading the idiot by dostoevsky yeah and that falls out of his lap yeah i do like how uh in the beginning of this like he is uh an empathetic character like he jokes around with the guys uh, in the locker room and everything but he looks out for them right when michael ironside is like getting his his chops busted for working on the machine uh he's like hey osha says we got to do this and this man like get off his back you know it's mm-hmm. he he's like a caring person so there's still those flashes of um i guess kind of the aspirational humanity that just get, totally go away when he's on his own and he's left to his own devices. Um, so the, speaking of the guys who work at that, we have the wonderful Michael Ironside, who I think brings a lot to this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's doing some great acting. I like Miller as a character. Um, again, Reg E. Kathy, uh, our connection back to the previous movie and the guy who played the kicker in the water boy rounding out rounding out our crew <laughs> is that uh uh who was he Lawrence Gilliard yeah yeah uh yes interesting yeah yeah all these people um so many of the actors in this are have like deep uh, character actor or background actor uh, resumes. It's kind of crazy. It's one of those like, how did you get all these folks on this, you know, little movie? 
So one of the things I believe this movie primarily shot in Spain mm-hmm. and uh, which is, I think, part of the reason why they cast Aitana Sanchez Gijon as that Marie, the, his Marie. And it's a whole Spanish production mm. um, in the in the cast or in the crew. So I'm wondering if by setting it in Spain, they were able to set aside some more money to just get a handful of character actors because these guys like I feel like Ironside stuff you you could film Michael Ironside out of this movie in two or three days mm-hmm. same with a lot of these characters between you have the factory floor setting the locker room setting and then with Ironside we go to his house and that's that's really not a lot of work but you want guys who have that screen presence mm-hmm and I think Ivan is the one who's got the most uh, screen time, probably. And he's in the Ivan most locations. Ivan is the one Ivan that is... sticks out to me the most. His oh, teeth! Yeah. He's iconic. And are those prosthetics? Yeah, I looked him up because those... I was like, there's no way his teeth are like this. He does have very like nice, long teeth, but mm-hmm. they are not like sharp and pointy and jagged. Like Those the are some teeth... prosthetic teeth. The teeth on Ivan are amazing and i do remember the moment um when they're smoking cigarettes and they meet out in the parking lot and trevor says looks like a storm's coming and ivan goes oh i'd say the storm's already here and i remember that being like a oh shit moment (laughs) Uh, i I, I liked that in the script but he i think this performance as ivan is pretty spectacular because he's an over-the-top character in this world. Everyone else is really kind of playing it a little tight or pretty realistic to normal life in comparison to American Psycho, where everything feels a little elevated. But in this movie, Ivan is the elevated character, the one that feels like there's something false about him. And, And as it as we come to learn in the movie, it is just Ivan is essentially just an incarnation of Trevor's guilt. Mm-hmm. But he, he's an incarnation of guilt who gets to chew the scenery and gets to wear a fantastic uh, leather fringe jacket and some those kick-ass boots. cowboy boots. Those boots. <laughs> he looks like, I want those boots. <laughs> he looks like Morpheus when he first introduces himself in through the truck and he yes. has those sunglasses on at the cigarette and the storm behind him he's like redneck morpheus (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah apparently he was also in he was a taxi driver in love actually um sure it's and i know the scene i just can't picture him in it i do remember him as uh the captain of like the luxury liner in fifth element oh yeah that Ruby Rods ship. <laughs> it's the one Ruby where Red. It's the one where they do the the op- operatic singing, and she's got the thing in her Twi'lek tails. Yeah, the ship that Ruby Rod is on. Yeah. Uh, what about? I mean, my MVP for the movie, um, the the lovely Jennifer Jason Lee, like being kind of this. 
the heart through the movie, I felt like. Really, like, a wounded human. Bale turns into a shell of a person, but she has uh, actual depth to her, I felt like. Yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee is a prolific actress and maybe only really come into my radar more so in the past 10 years. I know she's been going forever, but I've just started to see more and more of the movies that she's in. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of her. Um, like the hitcher. That's one of her early ones. She's great in that. Um, I used to think the jacket was really good. That's probably not a good movie with Adrian Brody. Mm. But in the past 10 years or so, uh, she's done, I thought she was amazing in The Hateful Eight, one of the best parts of that movie. Mm-hmm. And then Annihilation and Anomalisa, which are two um, really oh, spectacular movies. I love both of those. Uh, Annihilation. Okay. I was trying to figure, I don't no like i haven't seen her many very many places and i think the only places i have seen her have been annihilation and twin peaks Mm -hmm. uh i'm scrolling through imdb and nothing else is like i see names of movies i know i've heard of but i've never seen said movies um oh that's not true schenectady new york oh yes brutalized me so hard i think i blocked it out um so fudge she is in uh, three movies, at least, that completely wreck me. Annihilation, Schenectady, and Anomalisa all oof, are just, just wounding, wounding films. Uh, but she's also in a couple Coen Brothers movies, uh, and she's in Existence and Possessor, so she's worked with both Cronenbergs. Hmm. I need to rewatch Possessor. That was... We watched that on a Sunday at 5 a.m., and that just didn't quite feel like the right time to be watching one of the more brutal movies that I've seen in the past few years. I liked it, though. And I just added Synecdoche, New York, to my watch list because that's a movie that I've read that title about 3,000 times in my life, and I would like to watch it just so I know what the hell it is. I I think I watched it because Josh told me about it and it did just absolutely brutalize me. Like I was I it's not hard to make me cry, but I was like sobbing through the latter half of this movie, but like in a very good way. Uh it was like very emotionally cathartic. So I think it's I think it's worth watching. Uh five stars and a heart for me. I think that was probably the case for me too. Do you guys miss cigarette lighters in trucks? Even if you don't smoke, I just, as a kid, I would play <laughs> yeah. with that, play with the, the heater when it yeah. was bored in traffic. And yeah, same, same. Just put, my mom was always yelling at me not to mess with it, but I would like yeah. to press it. And then like when I was a kid, I didn't even really understand what it was. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, press it in and pop out and take it out. And I'd just be like, huh, why is it? Why? Why is this here? What is this for? But it's because my like, parents didn't smoke uh, when I was, you know, a kid. So, okay, this probably exists, but there's probably now ones that you could still plug into a cigarette adapter and pop them in. But instead of for a cigarette, be like for a weed bowl, and you have a little <laughs> ceramic rod that sticks out. 
That must exist. <laughs> and if it doesn't, that's a good idea. <laughs> Not really. I don't want to promote smoking and driving but it yeah i was gonna say yeah let's let's move on maybe avoid impaired driving um so a thing that was originally really bugging me about this that in talking it out uh with my husband i finally figured out is hangman the hangman Mm -hmm. uh game that was going on on the fridge uh and my initial sort of just like this is not how you play hangman that's not how the hangman works you don't draw the arm and then put the letter down. Uh, and it finally oh, clicked yeah, with gotcha. me what was happening as he was playing Hangman with himself. So when he drew the arm, it's because he knew he was wrong, even though he didn't know he was wrong. Does that make sense? Like, oh. He knew he was putting down the wrong letter when he wrote it. So, oh, so he, so he was he marking, marking it against himself. Yes. Because, uh, okay. Which, when looked at it in that context, okay, fine, I'm willing to take that. What I am not willing to take is the fact that there were two L's in that word, and both of them should have been filled out when L was guessed. (laughs) The second L should not have been an empty space. It should have also been an L. There was also never any point... You don't go on Fortune and say, can I get an L? Yeah. Thank you. Can Can I I get get another another L? L? Yes, exactly that. (laughs) Exactly that. That part, like... Now that I have reconciled why he was playing it incorrectly in my head, because he's playing it with himself. So that makes sense, like why things were marked. Like initially, when it's on there, it's marked and there's letters ER, and then I think it's like a head and a neck um, mm-hmm. get filled in. Um, and yeah, so he would, you know, draw something on it and then fill it out. And then the next time around, there'd be different letters filled in and more lines on it. It was just like, I don't, nobody is playing this game correctly. Um, but yeah, he's. I, the, the, the Hangman game did feel a little silly. Yeah, it was weird, right? Today on watching it again of. So what, what part of his brain is the part that knows he did this? So when he mm-hmm. sleeps for 10 minutes, when he's sleepwalking, that's when he's making these post-its. And then the movie seems to go out of its way to show us that his normal handwriting is yeah. undercase and different when he writes mm-hmm. by bleach. And I I just, it I, I don't know if it was necessary or being able to like create these red herrings of oh it says tucker oh it says miller oh and then it was uh, mother or, or mother but it was like, mother i think it was tucker mother miller tucker, mother miller killer killer <laughs> <laughs> uh, another, uh, there's another an favorite album title, album title. Yeah. <laughs> thank you Sean. <laughs> um it did feel just Kind of goofy, kind of silly to me. Um, I, I just it didn't really ring true. And I, but I know that this movie, so much of it is complete fabrication through our character that it doesn't have to ring true. I don't know. Josh, did you have anything on The Hangman? Uh, I thought because when he goes to fill it out initially, um, there, there is a marker in like the basket of pens that he mm-hmm. picks it up out of. Uh, and in my head, he was like, I was like, is he going to realize? <laughs> like, 
Is he going to pick up that marker and then it's going to make sense to him? No, not yet. Okay. It's nope. sort of going to keep going with it. Um, yep. Yeah. And it did bother me that he was marking things down because I'm like, that's not how the game works. And it, yeah. the whole, the whole thing feels, uh, it, Anderson is kind of like a really good, uh, indie filmmaker in that, this feels like an elevated student film, kind of in the same way that Session 9 does. It's rougher on the edges, and it's got a lot of um, like things that are clever in it. But I feel like the twist in Session 9 works better. Uh, also, it punches you in the gut, whereas this one is more like, oh, okay. It's, it's that, sad, but... I hadn't really contextualized it with Session 9, and that is interesting that in some ways, Anderson is going in, going in for a double dip. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the scene where Trevor sees Ivan in the factory floor, and he's helping Trevor's helping Michael Ironside fix the lathe, and upon seeing Ivan do a throat slit gesture, Trevor backs up into the start button. I found this legitimately harrowing and stress inducing and i i i thought this was one of the more like effective parts of this movie especially as just our character our narrator is already down clearly he's already fucked up and now causing a coworker to lose an arm in this visceral way uh i thought that was a good way to really kick things into high gear of how the collapse of his world. There's uh, something about, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I've, I've worked in factories like this. Like when I was younger, this is what I did. Um, in my late teens, uh, when I was 20, um, before I moved to Nashville, worked on like big, uh, presses and, welding machinery and lathes and stuff like that. And it's terrifying. Like I have such a risk averse mind that all of these just look like dangerous items to me, no matter what. So I can, this is why you're afraid of getting your hands stuck in the, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it's that, it's that, it's that all (laughs) is coming together. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, to the to the extent that I worked in a place making uh, air conditioner parts, so there's a lot of copper tubing and a lot of um, this little like sonic welding stuff that they do, and you would use like this dish soap kind of solution and uh, to expand the pipes, like you put it on top of a a piece that would like expand and stretch the pipes out, and then you'd have to fit another one in. And one of those stampers, uh, there was a woman, I didn't see it, I was on lunch break, there was a woman who got her finger caught in the stamper, and it like lopped her finger off from the knuckle uh, up, the, the big knuckle uh, up. Her, no. her daughter also worked there. Her daughter took over the machine the day after her mother oh, lost no. her finger on it. And Oh, no. The ne- no, th- that didn't happen. But oh, but the next week, the mother was back there working again. Like, and I'm just like, 
this this environment is not for me. I do not like this. Uh, and it's dehumanizing to the point that we're literally losing limbs. And it's just like, uh, kind of like the corporate world, right? It's like plug and play. You just put another body in there that can yeah. put their foot on the pedal. Uh, but I saw nothing like Michael Ironside's arm flapping around inside, <laughs> inside God. that spinning wheel of death. Did either of you play What Remains of Edith Finch? Yes. There is a... That's a great game. I'll spoil one part of it, but it's a game where a whole family has died throughout the course of history, and you go through their journals in the house and kind of see these memories of how each member of the family died and this family that's cursed, and uh, one guy works at a fish factory processing mm, yeah. tuna or something and so you as the character you control his hand and you keep sliding tuna and then chop its head off and then push it through the machine and you keep doing this but as he starts daydreaming everything in the environment starts to change and becomes something else and you start to lose perspective of where your hands are going and and then eventually you do chop your own arm off and that you just reminded me of that, actually, Josh. I didn't think of yeah. that earlier. Um, this, the, the, both that and then, um, look, anytime I'm in a machine shop like that, like anytime like we're in there in fiction, I am immediately assuming that somebody is going to get injured on a machine because I got to prepare myself for that. Um, and you could tell that first day you could tell how they were setting it up uh, because I was it Ironside who was doing the repairs mm-hmm. on the, yeah. so as soon as that conversation happened, that was the setup for now someone is going to get hurt. Um, so then when this does happen, like, you know, it's going to happen. You're watching it, you're watching it and you know, it's going to happen. And then it starts to happen. And this one's like really bad, but then when we come back and it's Trevor and we're seeing just shots of the machine, like we already know we're like, Oh no, it's going to happen again. Like something's going to happen. And I think at least for me, that already put me a little bit in the headspace of like, is someone trying to get revenge? I legitimately was like, are 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 they trying to fuck him up because Miller got like because he, Miller got fucked up because of him? I legitimately was right there with him, um, and feeling like this might be revenge just because like that whole thing, uh, with these people who are working in the shop and the way that they interact with each other to me is just deeply uncomfortable and doesn't feel genuine or safe. Um, and maybe this is just because I'm watching this as, you know, a woman who has never like been like we just it culturally culturally we we do different things like we get catty and we're awful. Um, but like men in movies and groups like this just get mean. So mm-hmm. it wasn't hard for me to look at this. And even with like their their first interaction w- where it seemed like they were friends, it still wasn't hard for me to look at that situation and be like, nobody here is actually friends with anyone. Um, so it wasn't really hard for me to jump to when Trevor was is working on the new machine. It wasn't hard for me to jump to. He is going to get hurt 
And it's because somebody else did it on purpose because they moved them to that machine deliberately. I love a community freakout scene that a lot of movies like this have where one character, the walls are falling down and crumbling and they finally have that public snap. And uh, those are always satisfying scenes, really, especially because you find you, you get to let an actor just go for it and just explode, whether it's uh, Michael Shannon and Take Shelter or this or, or you know, so many other movies. Um, Kevin Costner's wife in, <laughs> in uh, Field of Dreams. Josh has a cattail in his <laughs> face right now. So cute. <laughs> Hopkins, um, you little butthead. <laughs> did you guys like the little the little dig that did Anderson write this? I think he did. No, I believe Scott so. Kozar read it. Oh, and Scott Kozar, I think he wrote session nine. Um anyways, did you like the little dig that they take at Landlords by naming her Mrs. Shrike? And shrikes are birds that that impale their prey on thorns. Super and did them not there. connect to me, but uh, that's great, and I love it. <laughs> it was Whoa. a fun little thing. Whoa, uh, Scott Kosar was a pro- supervising producer and writer on Haunting of Hill House. Whoa, that was a weird noise I just made. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's really exciting uh yeah. love when things tie forward to the other things i'm obsessed with oh and the writer i was thinking of on session nine was stephen gavedin who also acted in that movie so i wasn't no oh yeah wrong yeah. thing wrong guy so after that they have a meeting with his union rep and no the union rep of- is missing Oh, their union rep is missing, and Ivan doesn't exist when they tell him that he's like, oh, I was talking to the other guy from the show. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm this thinking is of a one of scene. many after this. We get a lot of car chases in this movie. I did not remember <laughs> how many times we have white truck chasing red car. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you've seen this movie once and you go back and watch it again, there's like a thousand different foreshadowing scenes, mm-hmm. which on rewatch are so obvious. I, I I don't think it really connected with me the first time, but things of him blowing red lights, literally stopping yeah. his car in the intersection. Yeah, I thought about that too. Is when the when when the the red car went through the the intersection that first time, his car went through it the exact same way. Like yep. he did it the he did the exact same turn. There's 130 is when it happens. He has a Route 66 thing on his rearview yep. mirror with the kid. They go on Route 666. Yep. Um, the, yeah, the mother being Marie, the waitress. Yeah. The shot of her running at the swing set at the yeah. carnival. There's a million things. Um, so that's kind of fun in that way to... To put it together, I don't think it's too obvious on a first viewing to know exactly what happened. But then, you know, characters say things like, um, Stevie says to him. Oh, 
Oh, if you were if you were any thinner, you yep. wouldn't exist. And then in the next scene, Marie says it. Marie says the same thing to him. Yeah, I had that written the, down too. And the clock, whenever he's with Marie, the clock is at one thirty, ticking mm-hmm. back and forth. And they say one of the things if you want to get into lucid dreaming, a good way to know if you're dreaming or not, well, like is to check a clock. So if you have presence of mind enough in your dream to look at a clock and then look at it again a moment later, it will be completely different, and that's like your signifier that you are indeed dreaming. Hmm. So there's there's a lot of stuff like that. And then at the very end, you know, with the kid, we, we see a lot of times there's two paths. There's the left-hand path and the right path, and the left-hand, as left-hand paths often do, lead to hell and damnation. Or at the end of the movie, the left-hand path leads to continuing to deceive yourself by going to the airport again mm-hmm. go to the airport again keep the lie going also the left then, path in the sewer yeah mm-hmm. and then finally by going to the right you find salvation uh, josh it also reminded me of the moment when he and the kid are in the haunted house ride and he's like go right go right buddy and the yeah. kid turns left uh, in session nine there's a part where a character at night is alone in the uh, asylum and there's two hallways. One says staff and one says patience. And I'm mm-hmm. like, please go staff. Please go staff <laughs> in that one. And just another little connection between all these movies. Did, let me check. Oh, I was going to say, because Anderson also edited session nine, but did not edit this one. Uh, but it still f- maintains a lot of the same feel. The, like the, pacing and kind of the language of it is very similar yeah they're they're pretty methodical and slow gloomy movies with an underlying uh catastrophe an underlying tragedy that has happened that is propelling everything forward would would these be considered all, all will be revealed would these be considered elevated horror these days since they are like horror movies about trauma and traumatic experiences? Session nine, maybe, but I think it would be a lot more heavy handed or so. I don't know. Peter Mullen's mm. amazing in session nine. That's he really, he's the one that elevated that movie for me. Um, but this one I was going to ask you, what are some other paranoid thrillers that y'all are into or that you can think of? I was trying to think of one that this reminded me of. And the, here are the, let me see if you can guess what movie I was trying to name. Here are the potential titles that I came up with it for, for a paranoid thriller. Rutherford Park, Armistice Lane, Tillamook Road. <laughs> That'd be uh, Arlington Road. Yes. Is that, is that Arlington Road? Yeah. I Got could it. not come up with Arlington Road, but those are all the other titles that I was trying to think of. And Tillamook Road is my favorite because I just had cheese on the brain. I was going to say, that's a, that's a cheese. That's that's where the dairy is. <laughs> but, um, or um, some of those De Palmas, uh, a movie like Blowout. I feel like would yes. kind of go along with this movie. Um, 
it's weird because a lot of my favorite movies of the genre are not as horror tinged. Um, I mean, like the conversation Francis Ford Coppola is one of my favorite movies. Um, I watch it once or twice a year, probably um, three days of the condor, which has come up a lot for me recently, um, which is great. You had kind of the, um, the Grisham ones, right? Uh, but the closest for me would be uh, Shutter Island. I, I was mean, thinking about that one too. Yeah, yeah. A That's lot a of the call. a lot of the ways that it plays uh, are very similar. The I feel like the tone is similar. Uh, Shutter Island is more is a prettier film for sure, uh, but they both have great you know central performances as well. Uh, that had Leo in the, in the Mm -hmm. lead role. Right. So wrapping around to American psycho, um, originally they, they had Christian Bale and then they decided to go with Leo DiCaprio. And, uh, when I was, when I was reading this thing about when he lost weight, uh, he, um, Oh, not when he lost weight. I was reading about it in that article. But basically what it was is when Leo was put in the role temporarily, Bale just committed and didn't pick up any new projects because he was he was certain that DiCaprio would drop out and he would play Bateman, which he did. Um, so that's my little wraparound there is just, yeah. Leo was I'm, originally... Leo never could have done it. He, he just never I'm could have done it. I'm pretty sure... I hate American Psycho starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 100%. There's that. The thing is, is like that. I just don't think he could have done it right. He would have. No. He would have been manic in a way that wasn't like. <laughs> Bill's performance has a sense of mania, but it's very restrained, like mm-hmm. very restrained. And I just don't think that Leo can do that same thing. I don't think Leo also can make himself the physical specimen and do the body (laughs) modification that Bale can to basically become the shape that any director needs him to become, whether it's... I've also seen... um, Oh, God, what's that Werner Herzog one with him and Steve Zahn? Rescue Don. He's skinny as a stick for that one, too. And then he did a boxing movie or a fighting movie where he was... Yeah. Skinny in that one, but then he's been heavy and bulky in others and Yeah, there's one where he gained like a hundred pounds for it or something. Was that um for the Cheney, Dick Cheney I think. one? Yeah. yeah. Um but like here's the thing is like yes, you you won't get other actors willing to do that, and that's correct. <laughs> they shouldn't want They should not to do, do this. No, no people Christian Bale should not be doing this to himself. I mean if He's a grown man, and this these are choices he's allowed to make for himself, and that's fine. But like, if you were to ask my advice, my advice would be don't do that because it ruins Maybe your don't. body. Like just don't. Like just doing it once is already so much. <laughs> it, and every role he has has been pounds. a yo-yo. Like every yeah. role, every role he's changed his weight for. It's bananas. They said in here, like in this article, that he just didn't eat in order to be able to get into the race car for Ford versus Ferrari, which is 
bananas. Um, although for me, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, it's not even that bad. So my dad was a race car driver when I was a kid for a very short period of time. So he had race cars, uh, Thunder Class, and I used to get in them and play when I was a kid because they would be parked in his shop. And I'd be at his shop while he was working um, because he owned a uh, frame and alignment business. But like I would get in and play in those those cars. So when I read this the first time, I was like, those windows aren't even that narrow. But that's because it's a completely different type of car. And thinking about it, I'm like, ah, yes, the Ferrari probably would have to be, a, you'd have to be a lot narrower to get in and out of those, actually. But I had very much an L Woods thing in my head of what? Like, it's hard? <laughs> I'm just sitting in a car. You're just getting in through a window. It's fine. Uh, where are we next in this movie? We went to the carnival. Oh. Trevor starts to get stuck. These guys keep working on these machines with sleeves on. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, but both of you, I had a question for the carnival. Sean, yeah. what did you think of the carnival? You, you, we've got, you're kind of judgy on these movie carnival uh, scenes. Was I, this- the carnival is it looked okay. I, I, the older I get with carnivals, I was at one last summer, and I went on a few rides. I finally did the zipper. I don't remember doing the zipper was one I was so afraid of when I was a kid. But I love the zipper. I love the swings. I love getting in the swing with the metal chains mm-hmm. and then going up and with eighty other people flying around and. I just think they're whimsical. And uh so I was I was disappointed that we didn't get to go on the swings. I did like the the escalating uh hell ride where things start off corny and then pretty soon we're seeing like people banging in hell and <laughs> all sorts of depressing things and then they run over a kid on the hell ride right. and yeah. Hmm, what's and that all about? And they see his body lying there in the road and uh there was a point in which Trevor was like I don't remember the kid's name was but he was just like you should close your eyes. Like Nicholas. close Nicholas close your eyes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um and I like I think the tuna story is funny. The fact that Trevor keeps going on and on about this photo of Ivan and the other guy from work holding up a tuna. Mm. And so when he has his whole freak out at the factory, he yells at them, how's the tuna biting? And it's like, oh, buddy, that's not going to help your case. Screaming (laughs) that at people. I was really... Um, uh, When he called Miller in the middle of the night to just be like, hey, how are the fish biting? That exchange was interesting in retrospect. Like, at the time, it felt kind of weird because you're just like, what What are you doing, my dude? Do you think calling him and asking him about fish is going to catch him? Like, but in retrospect, like, Miller just being like, yeah, we went out fishing. Like, w- like it's just. Yeah, there's no accusation there. It's like, are you just drunk dialing me to reminisce yeah. about our fishing trip that right. we went on? Well, yeah. I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I did like that as he 
neglects to pay his power bill and the power goes out. I I definitely thought, even watching it today, that the bleeding fridge mm. was an illusion. And then it turns out that no, it's the fish from the photo, the red herring ah. is literal and leaking so much blood as it thaws that it's going into his landlady's ceiling. Yeah. That's a bad leak. It's not just water, but just like fish gut leak through the ceiling. That's no good. I mean, on the heels of watching American Psycho, it's very easy to immediately jump to someone is dead in his fridge. Like there is a dead person in his fridge, which obviously well, I think is what we're meant to think. It's it's the converse, though, right? Because in American Psycho, he does all this violence and only gets blood on him one time. There's right. blood on sheets two times, and it's never on any of his pristine furniture. Here, this poor dude bleaches his floor with his toothbrush, and yeah. there's just blood dripping down from uh, you know, his, his past. That's what I mean, is yeah. you look at American Psycho, and you he's got like these, like he's got literal heads in his freezer. Well, literal. literally imaginary (laughs) unreliable narrator but there's a head in in his fridge so jumping to there is a dead person in this fridge and that's why it's bleeding isn't really a big jump uh but i i thought i i loved the inversion of being like oh it's just a bunch of like fish and meat like frozen meat that's all it was uh, generally speaking, butchered meat does not contain that much blood. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it, it seems like he had some extra IV packs up there, or, or he's just strawberry syrup or something. Yeah, yeah, I th- yeah, and he also, I don't think they ever processed or gutted the fish. They just threw it full hole in the freezer. Yeah, that's sometimes what you do with tuna is you just freeze it. Without processing at all? Yeah, yeah. I've seen that's how they transport it, uh, is they'll Mm. just freeze it straight up. Um, Interesting. But but aren't aren't tuna real big? Yeah. That was the tuna head. That was... In, oh, in the fridge. that was just the head, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It wasn't a full fish. It was but just a head. When they're, when they're holding it up, tuna is like a, like a 50-pound fish. Minimal. Yeah, they're big 50 fish, pounds. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of fish. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They're big fish. They have issues with their dad, but through the power and magic of storytelling, they're able to reconcile before he passes. Okay. I forgot what the plot of that movie even was. Thanks for reminding me. One day, Josh and I will watch all of the dad movies that I've been avoiding since my dad died, like Field of Dreams, Big Fish. There's so so many dad movies. I know that feeling. Um... So here's the thing with, uh, you know, all the car chases uh, that it annoyed me. It annoyed me for two different reasons. So when he is chasing him and they're like in the pretty mountains spot, he's like saying to himself, he's saying what the license plate is and what he is reading mm-hmm. the license plate as is 743CRN but the license plate itself says CRN734743 so i got really annoyed by that 
Uh, and then I got more annoyed by it when they came back and were like, this is your license plate on your car that you totaled a year ago. It was like, how the fuck? Please tell me how he got his own license plate wrong. <laughs> I'm mad about it. I, I got uh, a new used car in February. And the other day I had to... Uh, register it online with the DMV and I will admit to having to go outside and take a photo of my license plate because I still don't have it committed to memory. I don't have mine committed to memory either. No. But he was looking at a plate that said CRN743. I wrote it in my notes. I said I'm helping because he got it backwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can also remember KFBR three nine two KFBR three nine two from uh, MacGruber, one of the all time great comedies of our of our lifetime. Neither of you have seen MacGruber. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> oh, I think I think I, I watched it, but I didn't really watch it. I didn't like watch it. Watch it. Well, I watched it. Yeah. You know. Well, KFBR three nine two is one of the all-time great jokes of our lifetime. You just had to be there. Trust me, it's funny. Okay. The audience right now listening is in hysterics. They're, they're dying. <laughs> they're eating sure. us up. <laughs> um, I like, so he goes to the DMV with that license plate, and the guy's like, no, I can't just give you that information unless you were in a, an accident. Yeah. And basically tells him, like, I just need to see some bruises. And so... Trevor goes outside to get hit by a car and first sees an SUV go by and is like, nah. And then he sees a VW Beetle coming by. I think that's a great choice. If I'm going to get hit by a car, I think a Beetle is a good one, a good choice to be hit by. <laughs> um, I was trying to think of other cars with a good line or a good slope or maybe just not a lot of soft, you know, it's rounded, yeah. that car. So you won't have any like hard edges to hit yeah. and you'll just kind of roll over the top of it yeah it's um, a nice gentle gentle car running over it's great um there was a like at the beginning of that scene i think the reason that he didn't pick that suv is because there was somebody across the street who was getting into their car that was looking at him like mm -hmm. looking directly at him and so him sort of like backing up and stepping back on onto the curb because he's like oh no i can't i can't have somebody see me do this huh um and then yeah just like the 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 follow-through for this guy on trying to solve this problem is to throw himself in front of a car <laughs> so that he can go back and say he gotten in an accident and Listen, just he hasn't he hasn't slept in a while he's not thinking clearly the irony <laughs> of that just the absolute irony of i'm gonna go run out into the road and get hit by a car <laughs> I also, I, I would have liked if we had also seen the driver of the Beetle stop the car and get out and, and be like, oh my god, are you okay? Mm -hmm. I'm going to help you, and I'm going to yeah. call the paramedics, right. and I'm going to, here's my information. And, and he's <laughs> just like, no, get away from me. I'm leaving. Um, when he's running away from the cops after they point out that it's his car, that's some wonderful, delightful physical acting from Christian Bale, because mm -hmm. his run with... He's malnourished, and he has a fucked up ankle, and he's running like Jack Skellington, or like prancing around as he's yeah. running, and he finds 
s- like a subway to, sewer hatch that he, he goes down. He tries to get like, on the subway itself first. <laughs> yeah. What is the up with that? lunatic. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was really funny about that, uh, him reporting the accident was on the form when he was filling it out. He had to draw a diagram (laughs) of the accident and he did it. And when you look at it, it's another one of those places where those stick figures come up. Like the stick figures that were on the Mother's Day card on the refrigerator Uh, in Marie's apartment. But uh, it it was just hysterical. The diagram was great. It was wonderful. It's a little stick figure with an arrow pointing across the road. Yeah. And then another arrow going across <laughs> that. Like, <laughs> I walked like, this way yeah. in the car. <laughs> it's very good. Um, um, I do feel bad as we get back to Stevie for a minute here. You know, she stops sex working and wants to live the domestic bliss life with her. And I think she gets to experience it for about 12 hours, maybe. This illusion of fantasy of her new life. And it literally comes shattering, crashing down as she's cooking him eggs and yeah. he smashes a plate and starts screaming. I felt I felt bad for Jennifer Jason Lee's character. Yeah, this point. there's there's a point during his meltdown where her face just falls and it feels like very real. Um, one thing I did like about that that small little honeymoon period that they had is he is in the bath and she's helping wash him and he's trying to say like what if i'm a bad person essentially and he goes he says what if i turn into a werewolf and stevie's Mm -hmm. response is i'll buy you a flea collar and i'm sorry but that's that's romantic that's That's cute sweet that's sweet (laughs) i really liked that exchange a lot and he kind of like he smiles at her after that but it's it's like it is a really weird question to just be like what if i turn into a werewolf and stevie's like processing this in her head and being like i don't i'll get you a flea collar and then you won't get fleas (laughs) and there's a moment even after he's had this violent outburst when he's the one screaming about the photo Mm -hmm. there's one moment where it's like she has such sympathy for him because she knows how broken his brain is that he doesn't recognize himself in the photo yeah and i feel like there's one moment where like maybe she's still going to help him or if if he realizes in that moment how crazy he is she'll still be on his team but he continues to then scream in her face and then um yeah she has that moment where they both scream and fuck off and get out and it's just to see to see this life that she hoped she had been living in two minutes completely fall apart yeah Uh, great great acting on her part yeah it does it is so sad that that gut punch of her not just this like falling apart but once he reveals that like that violent uh abusive act right of sweeping everything to the floor and like yelling at her i feel like even when he first grabs her when she's trying to walk away from him um in her mind, she's still like, this could this could work. Like, we could make this. She's willing to accept mm-hmm. some shittiness from him and some of this behavior in order to, like, have what, you know, the previous few hours have been or her idea of what it could, could turn into. Uh, mm-hmm. 
until it gets to the point where, you know, she slaps him and makes him leave and everything like, and, and so he, that yeah, he hurts hears he just as much. The, oh, sorry. Sorry, yeah. Josh. You cut no, out go ahead. No, Sean, you go ahead. You keep going. You cut out for a second. I thought you would stop talking, and then suddenly I'm mid-sentence, and here you come roaring back in. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, this is kind of the start of Trevor's unraveling as far as learning how flawed his theories are. And when he goes to the airport, we already had one big freakout of accusing everyone in the factory of planning and plotting against him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this moment was especially like fucked up and sad and depraved when he sees the waitress. And they did a great job of casting an older woman who had a vague resemblance to Marie. And so you could kind of see how he had uh, started to to create that fantasy. But when he yells at everyone just sitting there at that cafe... Like, did Miller put you all up to this? You're all working against me. And that that whole, like, group paranoia, uh, organized stalking thing that happens with people and the belief that there is, like, a global initiative and mission to to fuck with people. I, I just think it's sad here at the end to see this guy completely breaking and losing it. And... um and especially, it's it's one thing to go through these things in private and go through these kinds of events and meltdowns, but God, it sucks if it happens in public. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, who the fuck? Where are these people getting apartments where they have these like huge ass baths? I've never lived in an apartment with like a bathy a bath a bath a bathy bath. <laughs> um Mm -hmm. and these guys have like these huge like in stevie's it's like this big bath that has like a bunch of space around it like tiling around it and in his apartment it's like this corner bath that has several tiers to it and just like the fuck i want a bath like that That's it's one of the it's it's also like it makes sense in American Psycho like of course they have crazy baths because they're rich people and they have rich people things but like this is supposed to be an apartment that two very not well off people are renting and it's always like I guess that's just the thing in in media in general is the apartment's always like much nicer than those people should be able to afford because inflation etc. So I'm jealous uh, of the baths. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm I'm jealous. I haven't had a decent bath for uh, five or six years now. Uh, the bath here is very short. Like lengthwise, it's fine. Widthwise, it's fine. But to the top oh. of the tub, so yeah. it's like it when if you sit down on it, it comes to like the bottom of my ribs. Yeah, is <laughs> all is all the taller it is. Yeah, so you, you can't get a good soak going. Yeah. That's that's yeah, my problem because I live in an, an apartment, so it's like it's a bath that's really just there to sort of like serve as a a space for the shower to prevent water from getting out. Like it's not quite like just a lip, but it's small enough that it's just like this is not a, a grown person cannot fit into this. Yeah, my bath is short enough that I can I have the choice to either have all of my legs and lower half underwater, 
or my torso underwater, but then my knees and yes. thighs yeah. and all of my legs yeah. are then sticking yes. out of the air. And yes. so it's just a constant swapping back and forth. And uh, it's it's never relaxing no. at all because it's just a constant game of overheating one half of my body while the other half gets too cold. Uh, I went to Connecticut for a wedding back in August and we stayed in a very haunted house. Uh, and when I chose my room in the house i chose it because it was directly across the hall from this huge tub huge like two person sort of jacuzzi tub it took me half an hour to fill that thing uh and i would love to have i'd like to have a single person version of that tub that would be great uh but my my choice was entirely made on the fact that i wanted access to that tub it's uh when I go on work trips, I frequently everyone else was like going out to the bar or whatever, and I'm like, I'm gonna go back to the room because there's a bathtub here, and I'm going to sit <laughs> and and play a video game in the bathtub or read a book in the bathtub. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you're not that old, man. You don't have to be old to appreciate a bath. I almost exclusively exclusively took baths for most of my childhood and teenage years because I, baths are better. <laughs> They're luxurious. You're people who don't take baths are depriving themselves. <laughs> I just get bored. That's fair. That's why I bring get a book. Bored, bored you have in a, a bath. You have a steam deck. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. That's true. <laughs> You're running risk. Books though. <laughs> I've dropped a book in the bath, but it still worked. <laughs> you didn't get electrocuted? <laughs> it still <No>. worked. <laughs> it still worked. <laughs> so speaking of bathtubs, uh, Trevor follows the red car again, and this time he sees Ivan get out of the car and go into some sketchy-looking building and goes to confront Ivan in the bathroom. And the curtains are drawn on the tub. Ivan's shaving with a knife, which is always cool to shave a bald head with a knife. That just a classic movie thing that I don't think ever anyone does in real life. But it looks cool. It looks cool. Yeah. And they fight and Trevor slits Ivan's throat near the same spot where he was toothbrushing with bleach in the tile floor earlier. Mm. It's another little foreshadow thing. And uh, yeah, now we get back to the start of the movie where we have Trevor with the carpet with the body rolled up. And and uh, I was curious, this time when he rolls the body out and we finally see it and the carpet unfurls and it's empty for the rug. Um, and Ivan is the security guard walking over to him. Do you think Ivan, do you think that security guard is Ivan or is that still just his guilt manifestation fucking with him i mean i think it was originally like when the security guard showed up it was somebody else's face like a like a normal person i think what mm. it probably was was him seeing ivan like plastering ivan ivan onto another person okay. um but i feel like i remember there was a different actor there i could also be making that up my brain does that sometimes. <laughs> well, earlier in the movie, he does see a bald man at the bar uh, thinking that it's Ivan. Yeah. And so. Um, yeah, but this is the real, like, oh, shit moment. And then uh, we have the 
some of his most emotional acting in this movie, the the I know who you are moment, little not quite a monologue, but as he has the revelation and exclaims in horror, I know who you are, as he finally remembers um yeah, running over this kid as he was lighting a cigarette and then taking off. And uh he finally fills in the letter, the final letter to make it killer. And I like on his K, he attaches yeah. the leg of the K to the arm and not the body. So I, I like I like that. That was the thing that struck me because obviously my name's Kelly, so I've written the the letter K an amount of times in my life. Um and I remember seeing like a thing that's always uh been interesting to me is the way that people do their Ks because for me it's one line and then I basically draw like a curvy V off of it. But the way that you're taught or at least the way that technically I was taught when I was a kid and learning how to print is to draw it the way he did where you do like your stem, you draw your little guy on the top and then your leg is supposed to come from the 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 little arm the little guy on the top not attached to the stem itself but i obviously did not accept that because that was silly for me because when you learn cursive it's not that Mm -hmm. you you don't do that in cursive (laughs) so (laughs) you just untaught me how to like why would i print my letter that way and then go back to cursive the other way it's silly but um the way he wrote k was very distinctive to me I want to. I write in capital block letters because when I was trained in cursive, I wrote in cursive for years, but my handwriting was so sloppy that it was hard for me to read my own notes. Mm-hmm. And so I switched to block. So at least that way it's legible, even if slower. And so going forth from this day, if I can remember, I would like to start changing my K's. <laughs> I like that K. I it's- think that. That might have been similar to how my dad wrote it, actually, because my dad wrote exclusively in caps, uh, I think, my entire life. I don't think I ever saw him write a lower letter in my life. My dad um, wrote in caps, too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't really know why. I never asked him, but uh, it was something that uh, that I thought was interesting is um, I had an uncle. I have an uncle who, when he types in like originally it was just like in an email or on aim he typed in all caps and i was like why are you doing that you're yelling at me and he pointed out that it was easier for him to read like it's easier for him to read Mm. what he typed because it was in all caps and caps tend to be a lot clearer in terms of like what letter it is um so i don't know if that's why my dad wrote in caps I interpret handwritten capital letters far differently than (laughs) typed capital letters. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So he knows who he is and he's going to turn himself in. He packs his stuff up. We see earlier in the movie there was some candles floating in a bowl and that was his mother's bowl. And everything, all of his fabrications about Marie can be traced back to some... Mm-hmm. vague sense something real in his life that he's done and um you know we we see him bid farewell to ivan ivan stands outside the police department and so by going and turning himself in he's able to rid himself of this guilt angel that's followed him and and at the end yeah we finally get to say he he, he just wants to sleep and we finally get to see him 
in what looks like the most uncomfortable position yeah. on a metal bench <laughs> leaning against the wall. I, He's going to wake up with the worst crick in his neck. I was so mystified by that because it's like, my dude, you have a big old bench to lay on. You can lay down like a normal person. And I don't know, maybe he just <laughs> forgot how to lay down like a normal person. But I was absolutely mystified at the way he sort of sat and slouched, but at an angle. <laughs> was and then his neck like just uh yeah it looks really was, painful was his t-shirt a little too much with it it's, having a zooming car on it and it says justice brothers it's a little on the nose i didn't catch that <laughs> no <laughs> a little a little on the nose i did not catch bit. that <laughs> and i thought it was weird the final i thought the final shot of the movie was weird that the movie ends on a shot of quote unquote chubby Christian Bale. We see him as he's driving away from the accident with a cracked windshield. Mm-hmm. And then we go to credits. And I feel like that was strange because we just watched this guy kind of absolve himself of this guilt. And then to get placed in our last moment back in that moment of guilt seems to have kind of negated some of that absolution and healing. Do you think... I wonder if part of that is he has had insomnia for a year. This stuff has been going on for a year. And he has finally come around and he knows what he did and he has confessed what he's done uh, and he can finally sleep. And I think what's happening is he is finally coming back to himself. The last time he remembers being himself, which is when that happened. Like, if you're going to talk about him having this sort of fractured mind and existence for the last year, that's 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 coming full circle. That's him reconnecting to who he actually was as a person. Okay, I dig that. I think I think that makes sense to me. I, I mean, I, I hear where you're coming from. And I think it until you started talking about it, I hadn't even thought about it. But um. I think that that could be maybe what it's intended to be is is looping back around to reconnecting to who he was when he did this thing and disconnected from himself. Uh, Josh, you got anything else as we get to the end of this movie? Um, let's see. Well, uh, for years, Christian Bale just had had identity issues. That's he's. <laughs> He's That's a really good a, point. He's not a real person. Uh, he has uh, disassociative disorder, apparently, in this one. And then he's Batman, who's not healthy. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great summary of Batman. Uh, the, the whole end, like the Ivan fight and the stalking of Ivan and all that. What did that look like to everyone else? Like if you were watching this, is mm-hmm. it like in fight club when it reveals all the times that he just punched himself? Is he rolling around on the floor of his bathroom? That part boggled my uh, mind. The logistics yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing though, isn't it? The same with American psycho is just, what does this look like on the outside? Right. If he's if he's making this up but participating in it, what does it look like on the outside? Does it look like anything? 
Is this just happening in his head? Mm-hmm. It's a good question because when he's at the airport diner, she says he's practically mute and he just stares into his coffee cup. So is he is he acting out any of this or is this all just in his little micro naps that he's taking? I do like the idea of a single car car chase. That that <laughs> kind of absurdity is yeah. just making me laugh. Yeah, no, that is very funny. I agree. Uh, but Kelly, I think you're right. The The idea that the last real thing in his life, like when he went through that tunnel, that was the last real thing. Mm-hmm. Everything since then has been at least partially fiction, right? Like it's, he's making up bits. What then throws it into... Did he work at that factory? Who's his landlady? Yes. Like all those kinds think, of things. I are think just, some of those elements had real. to be there. Yeah. Because that like the, the core of like what seems to be his life makes sense for a man who is uh, blocking out memories so much so that he can't sleep. Actually, Stevie's you know what? definitely real. Miller's de- I, I think everyone outside of, Marie and her son, I mean, he imagines some confrontations with people, but yeah, I think the majority of these people are real, and this is what actually happens to them. You know what? Also, I... picturing that car chase, sorry. No, uh, that's okay. Have you guys seen Malcolm in the Middle? Did you watch that show ever? Uh, a bit, but not much. There's a great episode where Brian Cranston, Hal the dad, is getting stalked by one single bee. And it keeps terrorizing him. And at one point, he's on his way to work, and he's driving, and he sees the bee outside of his outside of his car window. And so the music gets really intense, and he's swerving, and he's hitting the bee, and then the bee is swerving back, hitting his car, and then it pulls out to a shot about 150 feet down the road, and you just with no music, and you just see a car yeah. erratically swerving back and forth along the road, and it looks insane. But then you jump back in the cockpit with Hal, and and you're back in the chase yeah. again. Um, I have to wonder. We're talking about how he's had insomnia for a year. The root cause of the insomnia is related to what he did and his inability to deal with it. But does that mean that the reason he was, I mean, that must mean that the reason he has insomnia is because he knows if he goes to sleep, he's going to, he's going to think about it. His brain's going to produce images and, and, and force him to sort of think about these things. And then when you talk about him doing like his little micro naps, that's what's happening, right? Is he... He falls asleep for a few minutes at a time, and that's when that's when things are starting to crack. That's when he starts to, you know, he's hallucinating his stuff with Marie and Nicholas and uh, the stuff that's going on with uh, Ivan. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason he's not sleeping is because he's haunted by this thing he did, but part of that haunting is just, like, he can't sleep because if he sleeps, he has no way to to control that. And that I like that. I think that that shows a lot more when you start to see these cracks and see him like every time we see him sort of nod off and then get woken up again. Um the truth lives in the dream. Yeah. That's And that's like the it's it's like a Freddy Krueger 
but it's just your your own personal past and truth yeah is the monster that he's trying to avoid uh, that i like that i because i and again that literally is the thought that only just occurred to me is just he has insomnia but like why and what does that mean like is it he can't sleep because he's too distressed well i mean it's got to be because if he sleeps, that's that's when he knows what's going on. That's when he can't pretend that it's not a thing. And then eventually when you get so sleep deprived, because I've been there, I've gone three and a half, four days without sleeping, unfortunately, uh, it really fucks yourself up a lot. So then you spend longer and longer not sleeping. And then that just makes the parts where you do sleep even worse, I think, mm-hmm. especially the further went- out he gets. I did 36 or 40 hours once of no sleep, and I felt terrible. Mm-hmm. I was so stressed. I had really, really bad anxiety. Uh, my appetite was fucked up. Like It was pretty unbelievable how quickly and how powerful sleep, mm-hmm. sleep deprivation became. Yeah. I, uh, I have bipolar disorder, so I'm sort of predisposed towards it but like if i have sleep deprivation uh deprivation issues uh i tend to get pretty manic uh you know even medicated like i i tend to get manic and the adhd kicks in i can't focus on anything like i'm just i feel like i'm just a jittery mess when it happens so the idea of not sleeping properly for like a year like i have insomnia i'm a person who like the reason i have had jags of not sleeping for extended periods of time is because it requires medication for me to do. I can't sleep on my own. My brain's dumb. Um, So the idea of just like feeling that way, but worse or longer is terrifying to me. I, I've, I've gone through, it's, it's gotten a lot better in the past few months, but for about two or three years, basically started during Sometime during quarantine, um, I could sleep like three hours at a time and then be up from one or two in the morning until five in the morning, then go back to sleep for 90 minutes. And it was it was just it was a mess. And I could not figure out how to get comfortable in my bed. And then my hands would start tingling when I'd fall asleep because I'd have my elbows bent. And it was sleep and my bed have never been this for me but they became like i did not want to go to sleep and i did not want to go to bed because i didn't want to face the struggle of it and it was just it was really strange for a while to have sleep as almost a nemesis and a thing that's necessary but i don't really know how to do it and I, but i need to and mm-hmm. i don't want to and it's tough it, it fucks everything up if you if you're not getting proper sleep yeah it's uh I can understand I can understand why somebody would be cracking like this even if they didn't have like some horrible haunting crime they committed, you know, trying to ruin like a thing that they've done that would ruin their life. Like even without that piece, it would suck. These were uh this was not a very uplifting double feature, <laughs> I will say. Uh I watched both of them. I started a little bit of American Psycho last night, but I basically watched both of them um, early this morning. 
And uh, interesting movies, good movies, not a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for me, I'm really glad we rewatched this one because, like I said, I watched it so many times. It still works for me. I still like it, just not... I don't like it like I used to. Um, I th- I think it's just a solid movie. It once you know the mystery of the who done it, so to speak, it it loses some of the punch. Um, I'd give it a three and a half. I still like it, and um, but yeah, I just I'm not I'm not attached to it like I once was. Josh, how about you? Um, man, I had a much harder time like seeing the holes in this one a lot more than I had when I watched it before. Uh, and I'm kind of, I mentioned it before, but the style of this, the like, I get where we're mirroring his mental state with, uh, dropping out almost all the color through large chunks of the film. Like we get red blood, red car, uh, but everything else is like really desaturated. Purple bruise is one of the few colors on his face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, like, it's just kind of, it wears me down. I don't want to be in this world. <laughs> I don't like it. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think it is pretty well done, especially for a little indie movie. Uh, so like American Psycho, the film does what it's trying to do. And I give it kudos for that. But personally, this tops out at three for me. It's it's just not. And, and I got no catharsis from it. Like there was no. It was kind of an intellectual clever. Like, oh, there is a trick. Whereas I feel like session nine kind of hits me a little harder. The, the reveal on that one. By the end of this movie, though, Trevor Resnick had some catharsis. Uh, 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 Kelly, what did you, what would you rate it? I say like a three. Um, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's like, I felt compelled to finish the movie. Uh, I liked it. I think it was, (laughs) that's a good sign. Um, I felt compelled to finish it. I liked it. I liked, I, like, I was interested in where it was going. I was interested in finding out what the answer was to it. It wasn't something that was so obvious that, like, you look at it, like, because you get movies like this where it's just, like, you figure it out halfway. Um, and for me, like, I had an inkling that this was going to be a case of, like, a dissociative personality sort of thing. But, like, mm-hmm. what that led to and how those things all tied together, I didn't, like, it, it, I couldn't get ahead of the movie on it. Maybe that's just me. Um, but and was fine. Uh, it's good. Like it does what it's supposed to. Um, I think it was more interesting to me to watch uh, thinking about it in juxtaposition to another film um, than I think it would have been just because I'm pretty sure I watched this movie before, but I obviously didn't remember anything about it because if I had, I wouldn't have been surprised at the end this time. Uh, but I think if it's just a film on its own, it's just kind of like, mm, yeah, I watched it. It was fine. If you want to watch it, you can watch it. But like, it's not one that I'm going to, you know, run out and be like, hey, watch this movie now. I was very glad to have a reason to watch it again, because <laughs> had I gone back to this one being like, oh, I had like nostalgia for it or I really liked that movie back in the day. I think this would have fell fallen a lot 
flatter if I didn't also have the context of American Psycho and thinking of how to have a discussion about this movie. Had I just <laughs> watched it for its own sake of entertainment, I, I yeah, it would have been a drab affair. That's fair. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. You are a wonderful guest, and I see why Josh chose you as my nemesis, because uh, I only want him to have one co-host in his life, and hey, I'm glad you that know his what? cowboy show seems to have stopped. You know what? And I'm working on stopping all of his other podcasts. Hey, okay, bud, I was here first. It's true. Yeah. I was here first. Sir, but I am happy to share him with you. <laughs> That's fine. His hair's. I don't know what it's doing not, today. It's, it's not, not very. Yeah, no. it's having a day. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as poofy as it normally is. And so I feel like if he was having a good hair day, I would put up more of a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you. Because he looks the way he does. Oh, Your beard wow. looks more. Your beard looks. No, you still yeah. have just the chin poof though. Where's 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 your jaw? What are you talking I don't, about? I don't have a jaw. I hide it. The, that's <laughs> why I have the beard, Sean. No, but the, the side jaw, the, the your the hair jaw, jaw on the side. <laughs> well, it's it's a little more pronounced. You can't see it because of the the darkness. It's not quite as poofy. It's yeah. been poofier in the past, where you just have like the chin ball. Yeah, where it looks like I have one of those plastic uh, loofah nets just. <laughs> stapled to the front of my face that's a that's an image that's That's a way of putting it yeah (laughs) um josh do you we have no no idea what we're talking about next we should do some kind of christmasy thing oh we totally skipped past the fact that american psycho is a christmas movie yeah yep mistletoe alert yep how did I not spot the Christmas in American Psycho? The big Christmas, Christmas party Evelyn throws that Paul all... I think that's where he gets Paul Allen to leave from, right? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Well, Josh, I, I have in one of my notes that you have not watched uh, Home Alone in a very long time. Is that true? That, that is very true. I feel like we should watch Home Alone. And then you should pick a Christmas movie from your past. But not, uh, what is it, Dial Code Santa Claus? No, that was a nice try. What about Die Hard? I do watch Die Hard every December. I have a friend who wrote a Die Hard Christmas musical. Home Alone Alone and Die Hard are very similar movies. (laughs) You're welcome. <laughs> Die, I don't know. What's there to say about Die Hard, though? I feel like it'll turn into one of those hey, Chris hey, Farley interviews. Hey, do you, remember, do you remember when he's crawling <laughs> in the chute? Yeah, that part's yeah. cool. That, oh, man, when the helicopter and the, the Johnson and John, Johnson and Johnson are funny. And yeah, the, Remember great. when the limo driver? Hmm. Well, we'll work on it, and if we figure it out, I'll record a little addendum insert and pop uh, pop it here our next episode will be home alone and the ice harvest and we'll do a end of the year 2023 
movie recap too. Just a little quick thing, nothing major next next time. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much. Kelly, thank you again. Yeah, Josh, thank, thank you, for you as me. always. It was wonderful. I would love to have you back. Oh. Great energy and so much fun to talk movies with you. Oh, thanks. Well, I'll have to think about the next one then. Yeah, and thanks for the reciprocal invite on your podcast that I didn't get right there. <laughs> oh, we oh. have to start the podcast again, Sean. Give, <laughs> yeah. us, a, give us a minute. <laughs> That's never going to happen, Kelly. Not on my watch. <laughs> but until next time, I feel like this might be a two-weeker. Yeah, I feel like I we feel might get the it. next one out in two weeks. Um, until then, listeners, please be kind to yourselves. Be kind to each other. And... Uh, yeah, we will see you again next time. This is Nashville CA, signing off.